and I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You, that you would do if you had nothing better to do. And but the, we actually did have something better to we do did. this weekend. We're at Crime Bake, which is our annual Crime Writers, Mystery Writers Conference. Yes. And, and even though I'm not a writer, I still go. Well, fans go, too. Because I'm a hanger on. That's right. You're part of my, you're not only part of my entourage, you are my entourage. And everyone just knows me as Maureen's sister. That's right. But you're kind of getting a following of your own. <laughs> yeah. You are. People know you. I, if I came without you, they'd be like, where's your sister? Yeah, they would. Why they isn't would. your sister here? They would. It's in Woburn, Mass, famous for a civil action. A lot of people died of cancer because the tanning industry was dumping chemicals into the Ugh. water. Good book, not good movie. Who was, who was in the John movie? John Travolta. Oh, yeah. That's right, back when he was Strangely a cast. John no, because at the time he was in everything. But we took the opportunity while we were here to interview some main crime writers who you'll be hearing yeah. from. And, you know, we had a good variety, too, yeah. of genres. Yeah, we have Dick Cass, who writes kind of noir jazz mysteries, we call them, set yes. of Boston. Brenda Buchanan, who, who? writes... It's kind of traditional mystery. They're kind of like mine. Her protagonist for her first series was even a journalist. Yes, and, and we had... Barbara Ross, who writes Cozies. And you're familiar with her if you listen to our podcast, because you, Becky, didn't you recommended her? I recommended her. Once. And she has the Clam Bake series. And she's actually a big fan of our podcast. Yes, she is, which, which we, we know, didn't know. I didn't know when I, review, when I reviewed, reviewed her. That's her right. And we talked to Bruce Coffin, who's a former Portland, Maine homicide detective and writes the John Byron and mm-hmm. it's our mysteries, series. but also police police procedurals that mystery. take place in Portland. We didn't do it by design. We just we wanted to do members of the main crime writers. It just all happened that they were all kind of different genres. Yeah, types so of books. it's a good mix. Something so, for everybody. I don't feel like I'm constrained by genre. I'm not constrained by genre either. There's some I like more than others, but I like them all. Yeah, Anything but, well written, I like. But if you like mysteries, you'll wanna. Listen, you're already listening, so come on, just keep listening. (laughs) Because you you may be introduced to some authors that you're not familiar with. And we talk about crime, too. And if you're not a fan of books or mysteries, the discussion, I think, is wide-ranging enough that people find it interesting. And, of course, we're in it, so, yeah. Yeah, and we're always interesting, right? To ourselves, at least. Anyway. But first, we have an update. Tony Sanborn, who, if you listen to episode 22 or our bonus episode that was released shortly after that, he's the guy who was convicted in 1992 as a teenager of killing Jessica Briggs in 1989 in Portland, and she was also 16. For most of October, they have been having a post-conviction hearing to determine if there were Brady violations in his case in 1992, which means withholding possibly exculpatory evidence the from prosecution, the defense. The prosecution, yes. Withholding the prosecution from withholding it from the defense. Yeah. And that hearing came to a settlement. Interestingly, after, well, not interestingly, that's a stupid um, adverb. Yeah. After, after Hope Katie, who had been the star witness for the prosecution in 1992, she was 16 at the time, but 13 at the time of the murder, and claimed she saw it happen. She recanted a, about a year ago. It turns out she was legally blind, 13-year-old, and it was a dark, rainy night, and she claimed to have seen it, and she didn't. And we'll, we talked more about it in a, episode and, 22, yes. and we'll talk more about it in a future yes. episode. In the hearing, she reaffirmed her recantation last week. By the time you hear this, it'll be a couple weeks ago. And then the defense and prosecution came to a settlement where his conviction is not vacated. Mm. He's still a convicted murderer, but he doesn't have to go back to prison. He served 27 years of a 70-year sentence, 
and laws have changed a lot since he was convicted in 1992, particularly how a 16-year-old would be prosecuted in a murder. And there are a lot of questions about how it was investigated and how the prosecution at the time dealt with the trial. And I think everybody was kind of happy with the outcome. I think that it's not ideal that he's still a convicted murderer, but I he think just wanted he it wants done. it done. He wants to be out of prison for the prosecution. They do not want to admit that they prosecuted the wrong person and opened up a new can of worms. Even if he is guilty, the way he was prosecuted and the way it was investigated was very flawed and a lot of evidence was withheld from the defense. It wasn't fair. It wasn't done the way justice should be done. He did not get a fair trial. And I don't think they wanted to have to retry him. No. You know, and one of their major witnesses, Jerry Rossi, is dead. And so, you know, I think this was just a way for them to step back without having to admit that they screwed up. And for the defense to say, okay, Tony's can be... Stay out of jail. And we'll have a longer episode about it. Probably a few episodes But I think the upshot was that both sides just didn't want to deal with what would have to happen right <laughs> if they continued and her stepmother still believes he did Jessica it Jessica Briggs the victim the families of victims have a certain outlook but the families of people who are murdered aren't on juries yes. for a reason and the justice system has a certain responsibility to do things right so that the people who do commit crimes are the ones who are prosecuted and convicted of crimes. That's right. And when you screw it up, even if it, you, it's the right person, that calls the credibility of the justice system. In fact, I think one reason prosecutors frequently don't want to admit they screwed up is because people will start questioning everything they've done. Yeah, that's what happens. If we can't trust you on this big murder trial, how can we trust you on every... That's right. It was supposed to be a 12-day hearing. And it lasted... At least three weeks. At least three weeks. And it was going to obviously just keep going and going and going like something out of a Dickens novel. Yeah. So anyway. So that's the update on the Sam And here are the interviews. We have Dick Cass, your second book in, in solo, solo Time. In Solo Time. I get the two titles. Yep, just, just came out. Just came out, and you're a main crime writer. You live in Cape, Cape Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And so how's your crime bait going? It's going very well. Actually, I've been to enough of them now that I know a bunch of people, yeah. which is part of the fun yeah. part. Like uh, and so, and you know, how many have you been to? This is my third. Oh, yeah, me um, too. In fact, we met you at Crime Bait. Is that before, true? Yeah, that's right. Before your first right. book came out, you had just right. had, we won't go into all the details, but you had... Uh, a publishing issue, I think, and your book was supposed to come out, and then it didn't. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the f- the first book was supposed to come yeah. out in September. And we were like, oh yeah, that poor guy whose book didn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it came out eventually. But then it came out. Yeah. And yeah. then and then the publisher stopped publishing mysteries. Yeah. So. I, and are you on any panels? I am doing a, a thing this afternoon with as as one of the ask the experts. Oh, oh that. Right. So what are you an expert? I, I have been designated uh, an expert in helping people decide if they're ready to submit. Oh, uh, oh that's a good one. For, ah, that's for, a good one. Uh, publishing. You'll have a lot of people. It'll be a feeding frenzy. I hope frenzy. so. I hope so. Because I think, Tell me right now if my manuscripts are right. Well, yeah. I <laughs> mean, I, I think we want to get beyond the manuscript part and get and people thinking a little bit about, like, the pre-work that you have to do before yes. you actually start sending emails to people. And, right. I've talked about it on our podcast before that I've been a judge in the mm-hmm. published contest, yeah. and one of the biggest things particularly people who, is they don't do that 
pre-work of having it edited and knowing mm-hmm. how to have it formatted, knowing like what print formatting is. Mm-hmm. I notice a lot of people have paragraphs that aren't indented and spaces between the paragraphs. Mm. You know, your word may automatically default to that and you have to know. And it's, but I tell people it's the same thing for submitting sure. to an agent or a publisher. Yeah, you have to understand the format. You have to understand what people are expecting. Right. And you a lot want, of them You don't have, want to print it on pink paper. Or, right. Or, or, well, a lot yeah. of them, there was one I submitted twice to once I was invited to submit to, and you may be familiar with this publisher, but they had 12 pages of what they wanted, how they wanted your I'm familiar. Formatted. I'm familiar with that publisher. And it was like nobody else wanted those things, so you had to do a separate. But we digress. Yeah. So your book came out in September, your second it did. book in the Elder Darrow is series. So it's a series. It, it is a series. And actually the second book is the first book in time oh, in so the so series. Time. So it's actually the prequel well, to the first book that came out, yeah. which has caused no end of uh, confusion because, until... We actually put book one and book two on the cover. But I think it worked well. I mean, I had read the first one that came out, mm-hmm. and then the second one, and maybe Which is it's called Solo Act. Solo Act, and maybe it's because I knew the sequence. Mm-hmm. I thought it it worked really well. Yeah. And what? Oh, can you summarize for our listeners? That might yeah. Know. An an alcoholic bartender buys a bar, deciding that that's how he's going to get himself sober. Okay. Good uh, plan. Which is yeah, yeah not not exactly accepted plan. in the twelve step tradition. Yeah. <laughs> But it sets up an interesting sort of central conflict to the whole character mm-hmm. thing um, yeah. outside of the Which you have to have. Crime. We yeah. learned today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, we already yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like your books have a good character arc. I think one of the things I hear from people a lot is they like the characters. It's kind of interesting because I have a another sort of not quite protagonist, but fairly major character who's a cop. Yeah. And so there's like a lot them. of back and forth between them. They're complementary characters. Like, they're different in a lot of ways, but they have little things that they like about each other. Mm-hmm. That, so it's, and it's they're a both relationship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things, yeah. And I also like the cook. Marina. I'm going to have her name wrong. Yeah, Marina. Marina. I like that character. Yeah. I like you have some good minor characters that are interesting and well-developed, yeah. too. Oh, so, you know, on our podcast, we talk a lot about true crime. Mm-hmm. And are there any crimes or types of crimes that inspired you or kind of informed your writing at all? It's a really good question. I think the crimes that interest me most are crimes, I wouldn't call them psychological crimes, but crimes of character defect yeah. and character breakdown and human breakdown. More than say like the serial killer, yeah, yeah. yeah, or the you know the random guy shooting out of right. his, his we garage window or something. We we yeah. discuss yeah. that a lot. Yeah. That crimes that are random or like yeah. the mob or drug, you know. Yeah. You're, sort, you're, you're sort of constrained once yes. once you decide to do that. You're kind of constrained. Yeah, because uh, right, one of the ways. things the reader, if you're writing a, a novel, a crime novel, or even a true crime book, is the reader is going to read something because they want to know why somebody did something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what we always want to know. Why? And and from the point of view of the writer, it's much more interesting to me to try and work that out as a writer on the page than it is to say, you know, well, he took out his Ruger, whatever, and and fired 18 shots. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, as far as the actual crimes in your book go, do you have any things that you just don't want to do, things you don't want to touch, or places you do want to go? Yeah, I I think the biggest... Hot button. I think a lot of people would agree on this is, is pedophilia. Any, mm, yeah. Anything having to do with kids, um, yeah. I think, is just too yeah. fraught and it's it's too touchy for. Yeah. And, yeah, and yet somebody somebody sometime will write, 
you know, the the crime novel around that and and make it work somehow. But it's too it's too scary for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not. If, even if the reader likes the writer, there's been a couple writers I like that have done that. And then Nevada Bar did a book that had like a pedophilia ring in it, mm-hmm. and it almost it kind of makes you. It colors how you feel about yeah, the writer. Well, about that book, at least. Yeah. You're kind of yeah. like, well, there are parts of this book I like, but yeah, it's like yeah. you it's entertainment, you know, in the long run. Well, that's the it? thing. It's like you yeah. don't yeah. know if you yeah. really yeah. want to read not, about it. It's not a very entertaining subject. No. no. And, and some I, people can do it in literary fiction, like Tom Parada with Little Children. Right. Yeah. But I think yeah. crime fiction, you, there's di- different Well, there's, there's also the, I mean, when, when you start talking about literary fiction, you're talking about, and, and I... I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but but people taking on most of us who write crime fiction write it as much for entertainment yes. as we do for working out character things right. and and motives mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think people who write literary fiction are really engrossed in uh, grappling with issues yeah. and maybe not so much concerned with entertainment. But that said, do you feel as a writer that you have like bigger issues? I mean, not big issues, yeah. but besides just okay, there's a murder. My character is going to get involved. I would, I would like to think that you know, as I write more books, I will sort of expand my repertoire right. of, of things that I can that I can deal with. But always, I hope in the service of a good story. I mean, that's the fun part for me too. Yes. Is, is like I, I'm listening to all this, this talk about pantsers and plotters and this kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I have never been anything but somebody who sits down and goes like. Okay, what now? I know, you know? Yeah, I know. And, and I just the whole notion of planning out the story and being able to talk about it before it's written and that kind of stuff is just yeah. Uh, yeah I totally, can't do it. I totally. can't do it. Now, yeah. did your publisher want for your second book a synopsis or even your first? No, book? actually, both of these books were written and finished. Oh, when before oh, they were good. before oh. they were submitted, published, which is whatever. for people who don't know. Usually, if you're an unpublished author, that's how you have to do it. You yeah. nonfiction's a little different, but with fiction, you can't say to an agent, "Hey, I have this great idea for right. a book, and I have a first chapter written and kind of an outline." What no. they'll say is, "Well, go back and write it, and yeah. when it's finish done, it. yeah, come back, prove you can finish it." Yeah. But back to crime, true crime. Do you have any interests in true crime? Is there anything when you see in the paper or online, it's like, "Ooh, I'm gonna want to read about that," or any? No, I actually, I actually came across. So we were up in uh, Bar Harbor a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and I came across an author that I did not know who had a, a story that I wish I'd heard before she did, which was the story of the high school swim team that was co-opted into swimming 25-pound oh. bales of oh marijuana across the Gulf of I Mexico. The thing that strikes me more often is those little two-liners that you see in the newspaper. Yes. You know, crazed guy in a Bruin sweatshirt, AK-47 <laughs> in the... In the rest stop in Vermont, right? Um, you yeah, know, tries, and you want to know more. Tries, yeah. tries to shoot an elk up in there, you know, or yeah, whatever. Like, so yeah, and, yeah. It's little yeah. things. I think you know because people ask us where we get our ideas yeah. a lot. And part of being a writer, I think particularly a mystery writer, is having that imagination where you can see one paragraph mm-hmm. and you think, "Wow, what?" But I what could, if I could do or, something with right, this? Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. right, yeah. What inspired, if anything, your theme of you know, the alcoholic buying the bar. Did you have any thoughts, you know, without outlining the book, of where you wanted to go with the crime or the characters? How did you develop the plot? Mm, that's all, that's like four questions. Yeah, so I know it is. But that's all right. Um, <laughs> mostly what I was looking for, what I wanted to do, first of all, I grew up in Boston. I love Boston, and yeah. I wanted to use it as a setting. 
And you not do with, a great not, notwithstanding the fact that I'm, you know, I'm I'm competing with guys like Robert Park yeah. and, and Dennis yeah. Lehane. Yeah. But um, yeah, the the character. When I was thinking about the character, the first thing I wanted to do was create a character who had deep, deep roots in Boston. And so this character's family, Elder Darrow's family, has been in investment banking in Boston since the Revolution. And so his family has this has this history in Boston. I started with the bar first because I spent a lot of time tending bar. And the thing I love about being a bartender is that you're invisible. Yeah. And the stories, the things you hear right. are just amazing. So it's a great place to, like, store stuff up. And also, you need a protagonist to be in a position where things are going to happen mm-hmm. and there's going to be a variety yeah. of people. Yeah. So that's Actuaries, good... you know, their, their right. lives are not so interesting. But thinking about you know him being an alcoholic and then buying a bar and that thing was was my attempt to give the character at least a really what I think is a pretty tough central yes. conflict. Yeah, um, that's a good. You know, he's taking this chance. I mean, he's he's been a drunk for a long time, and he's taking the chance that this weird idea that he has that being in the bar all the time and seeing what alcohol does to people and and having to manage those kinds of things is going to help him get control right of of his own problem do you see the character arc i mean i know like the one that really comes to mind is paul Warren, who decided before he started his series that his character who wasn't a very pleasant person in the first Mm -hmm. book and yours is much more pleasant would have a character arc that would go through several books. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of taking a chance because you want people to stick with the guy for more than one book to mm-hmm. get to that arc. But do you have in mind an arc for your character that's going to go through books, or are you just kind of, is he well, just going to it's, it's actually, right? it's kind of developing. I'm, I'm working on the third book right now, right. which is actually much more about Burton, the cop, than it is about Elder. But in the course of that, there are some things happening that are going to open up uh, Elder's life. A little bit, and so, in that sense, I think if he's got a character arc and a, and a life beyond two, three, four books, it's going to give me a chance to open things up. Um, oh, that's as, good. as far as what he's that's doing, like it. I so. like it when a character, um, a secondary character, kind of gets their own story mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm sure as a writer, sometimes you want to know more about that character when when you're writing. Yeah. Well, like that's why that's how I wound do. up writing the prequel. Mm-hmm. Because I got to the end of Solo Act, yeah. and I said, you know, as and I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, some, somebody spoil. somebody important dies in, yeah. in Solo Act, and I kind of wanted to know why, right. know, what the story behind that was. And that and was like with your second book, too, you kind of... A, yeah, a splash well, with mine, I had started after my first book, I had started writing the second one, which took place after the first one, but then I got interested in a character's backstory, and... Mm. I actually watched a documentary that gave me this great idea for a story. And I'm like, oh, but that would need to be a prequel. And I'm like, but I really need to write the sequel. And I ended up, and I'm sure this will horrify, I've heard a lot so far this weekend about linear plots. And this will (laughs) horrify the linear plot thing, but I have a lot of flashbacks to two years Mm -hmm. before. When I first told my publisher what I was doing, she was like, you know, that sounds like maybe you want to rethink it. I said, no, no, it's going to be great. I don't know if it was or not, but they liked it enough to put it. Well, you know, I think one of the interesting things about these conferences is you will hear, like, stuff from every corner of the universe and and every possible opinion about every possible thing. Right. what it comes down to is it either works or it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, and if that's it works, true. Yeah. If it works, if you can make it work, it's right. great. Yeah. Yeah. You and just have to point. know enough about what you want to do yeah. to know if you're going to quote unquote break a rule. Yeah. That here's why I'm doing it, and here's you know in your own mind why. Yeah. I'm right. I would say you don't even have to know that. I mean, right. it's just kind of like 
if you make it work, it'll yeah, go right by. Happens. It'll go right by your reader. They're yeah, not. That's right. I mean, your reader's not sitting there for the most part. Reader, reader, not your professional author right. reader. Your reader, reader is sitting there going, "Is this a good story? Am I, you know, am yeah, I, yeah. Being, am am I, I being exactly. pulled along? Am yeah. I, you know, am I following what's going on? I don't much care about the technique if I'm, you right. know, if I'm being. Uh, that, that's if, what I tell people too. Through. I learn more from poor writing as a, and I'm a very critical reader just mm, because of that. writing. <laughs> <laughs> but I learn more from poor writing because you're constantly thinking, okay, here's what they're trying to do, or boy, this. The, right. These adjectives. You see the you see the failures. Right, yeah. but, but, but good, even as a reader, you you just get irritated when it's. It, it's some yeah. do and some don't. Yeah. But yeah. but a good writer, you get so pulled into the story, unless you're you know reading it, unless you tell somebody, yeah, I'll read it and let you know if there's any typos, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But you get so pulled into the story, you're not aware of what the writer's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like one of yeah. my favorite, two of my favorite writers are Richard Russo and Eleanor Littman, and mm-hmm. neither of them are mystery writers. But their books are so good, I feel I really like the writing so much that I couldn't tell you what they mm-hmm. do that's yeah. good because and, you're in the story. Yeah, and the other thing is is if you're if you're reading someone who you've read before whom you've read before and you like, you're likely to cut them a little more yes, slack. Yeah. If you see something that could go one way or the other, right. you're kinda of gonna give them the benefit yeah. of the doubt. Now you came to fiction writing you had another career before that. Yes. Had you always wanted to write a mystery? Yeah, I don't think I convinced myself I could do it until I actually did it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, I think a lot of people. But I had always, I mean, I've been reading, I started out reading the Hardy Boys when I was yeah. like single digits old right. and mm-hmm. scaring myself to death yeah. And, and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, and, you know, Alfred Hitchcock on TV and Rod Serling and all those half-hour drama yeah. things. So I've been reading the stuff forever, and I think I just got to a point where I said, you know. It's time to do it. Know, I'll try it out see what it is. Now, what had like. you done before you were a mystery writer? I had a company that did technical writing and science writing for yeah. mostly for software companies yeah. or technology companies. Did you basically. have any fiction or creative writing training before you started? I was the, uh, the world's oldest graduate student <laughs> at uh, the University of New Hampshire. And I turned 40 and decided I was going to go get an MFA. So nice. I went, to the, I went nice. to the University of New Hampshire for, took a year off and wow. did that. I studied with some great people. Yeah, I've uh, heard their program is really the good. The program is very good. Yeah. They have a very good nonfiction program as yeah. well. Um, yeah. Mostly it was a matter of like, okay, what are other people doing? Is what I'm doing of the kind of quality that yeah. you know I feel like I can compete right. with, with the people who are writing well that's whatever age you are realizing that you haven't done it before uh that type of writing and having people critique your work Mm -hmm. that know what they're talking about whether or not it doesn't matter if it's if you always agree with it just having somebody look at it and tell you guide you and then at least you have the tools yeah i mean it's and it's also a function of opening yourself up yeah and getting out getting outside of the place where i'm doing this for myself yeah yeah and for my own amuse, and, and amusement went, or enjoyment. And I went to school for visual art, and there were people who, it was their second uh, academic career, they mm-hmm. decided they wanted to be an artist. I found them to be more open as students than people who were on the first. As a student, I was usually pretty open to criticism. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, yeah. I figured that's why I'm in school. But there are some people that just 
don't want to take yeah. it. And it's like, well, you know, but the people that were coming back, they wanted it. Yeah, yeah and I and, think that's true of something. If you do it later in life, it's because it's something that you thought about. And you want someone to, to tell you whether it's worth doing or not. Did you yep. feel any, when you first had your fiction looked at by other people, any, like, vulnerability? Oh, or, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, because you, I mean, you, you sort of pour yourself into this. And it's a very private thing. It is, yeah. I mean, even when you're doing, even if you're a published writer and there is a, a stage at which you're doing it that is, you know, I mean, it's coming, it's all of it's coming out of you, yeah. right? right? And it's all, yeah. at some point, you have to separate yourself right. from that, like, I just ripped this out of my flesh yeah. Yeah. Or, or something. That's also part of what you have to do right. if you're going to learn. I mean, if, yeah. you're, if you're going to get better, is, yeah. to, is to be vulnerable to that kind of stuff. I found one of the best, one of the things that got me going, finally got me, you know, realizing I didn't have to write a whole outline and everything, was reading Stephen King's On Writing. Mm-hmm. But one of the advice he gives in that is you're going to get a lot of criticism. I'm paraphrasing him. But if two or three people who know what they're talking yeah. about tell you the same thing, then you might want to listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you start to learn what your own weaknesses and, and do strengths you, so are. So do you have specific people that read your, you ask them to read your... You know, I get, I get out of the habit. I was in a group for a long time. Mm. I get out of the habit, and I'm starting to get back into it. And I think it's a good thing. I've had a couple of people ask me to read their things over the yeah. last couple yeah. of years and sort of talking with them about it and reminding myself what a useful, you know, yeah. what a useful thing that can be. Yeah. So I'm probably going to do more of that. What I tend to do is, when I have done it, is go to people who are outside my writing community. Yeah. And in fact, since I'm writing what I hope is popular fiction, yeah. I go to people that I know that read popular fiction, yes. but don't necessarily have a, any interest in writing it themselves mm-hmm. or being a critic or, or doing that kind of right. stuff. One and I, I find those, those kinds of reactions are really helpful. Yeah. One thing I find, the Maine has a really great mystery writing community mm-hmm. and a very close one, and everybody's really nice, but part of the problem is it's almost like having your siblings or something read your book, although I have my sibling read mine, and yeah. she's a good reader, but you, but you want people who aren't afraid of hurting your feelings mm-hmm. to read it, yeah. you know. And those are the people you will get with what I would call sort of not really professional readers, but sort of adept readers or, or experienced readers. If you go outside that community, I think what you get sometimes is surprising, more surprising results because when, when you get another writer to read your book, they're likely to cut you some slack because they understand what right, it is you're exactly. trying to get to. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so they're not, and, and instead, if you get somebody who's completely outside they kind of look at it and go, what? Yeah, yeah, they're like, I don't understand. Uh, right. yeah, why so I'm not getting yes. this at all. <laughs> yeah, and then the, and that's not that's probably that's more good. valuable feedback. What's the best thing about being a mystery writer, a published mystery writer? I think it is being able to share stories that you care about with people yeah. and having them out there so that you can talk to people about this kind of stuff. I mean, I love. I tell you, I did a, a book group last week with like eight or nine women, friends of my wife's, and and some other people. And I had the best time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so great. Yeah. It was like, you know, we had wine and we had cookies. And, yeah, yeah. And, and we just, you know, and they asked me questions. They asked me great questions about, yeah. Yeah. And you know, the And so book groups are great stuff. because they've read the book. Yeah, you know, a lot of times you'll go to a, like a bookstore or you'll go to an event kind of thing. Yeah. And you'll get a lot of writerly questions. Right. You know, where do you get your ideas? Yes. You know, when do you, when do you write? You know, what's your process? And, 
do you have a special room that you write yeah. in? And that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so the book group thing was was like the book. I've been in a book group for over twenty years. Well, this was our twentieth year. This yeah. Year. It started as a mother daughter yeah. book group, and yeah. we've had some authors. And it seems like a lot of times the questions people ask are about the characters. Yeah. Yes. Like they get into the story, which yes. is fun for the author. I mean, yeah. I think you know. I, and I like listening to what book groups have to say. Like their perspectives are sometimes things that you didn't think about, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh. Yeah, it was also interesting because these people were not mystery readers for the most part. Yeah, so they were fiction readers. Yeah, that's but, also so they were bringing a different. Yeah, they were bringing a different yeah. perspective, which so. is nice too. Yeah, because the yeah. thing I hear most from people who aren't mystery readers is, "Wow, you had all these different things going on, and then it all kind of came together at the end." And I said, "Yeah, that's, that's kind of what you're sort of baked to into the." Uh, <laughs> so, so why don't you remind our listeners who you are and what the names of your books are? Richard Cass. My first book is called Solo Act, but it's the second book in the series. And the second book that I published, but the first book in the series, is called In Solo Time, available wherever fine books are sold. Right. <laughs> they can get them. Um, I get asked a lot, can I get your books on Amazon? And yes. You, you, you can always and get the books on Amazon. Yes. And your favorite independent bookstore. There you yes. go. And yay bookstores. Yay. Okay. Thank All right. you We're here with Brenda Buchanan, the author of three books, the Joe Gale series, and you're working on a new series. That's right, I am. And mm-hmm. so why don't you start by just telling us who you are and what your books are about, and then we can talk about some other stuff. Okay. Well, I'm Brenda Buchanan, and I live in Westbrook, Maine, and I used to be a newspaper reporter. Yay. Yay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I stopped being a newspaper reporter and went to law school, of all things, and, and didn't write much for a while, and went back to writing about 10 years ago, crime fiction in particular, and have been doing that ever since. So the protagonist in my Joe Gale books is a newspaper reporter. And those are available on ebook. They write. They're only available in digital format. They're published by Karina Press. You can get them through that the Karina C A R I N A Press website or you can get them on, on Amazon, Amazon or So your new series is an attorney. That's right. So I, I'm an attorney, although I'm I'm a real estate lawyer and my life is kind of boring. Oh, that sounds really exciting. I know, really. It keeps you really <laughs> turning pages. I did a little bit of trial work when I was a new lawyer and I lived up in Hancock County. And these days I just do, you know, real estate and wills and stuff like that. But my protagonist is way more interesting than I am. Uh, Her name is Neva Pierce and she's about 35 years old and she's a criminal defense lawyer who grew up in Portland, Maine, left as soon as she was able, went to law school elsewhere. Her dad was a lawyer who was a criminal defense lawyer in in Portland and kind of notorious in some (laughs) ways and kind of bombastic. And she wanted nothing to do with him. And she didn't want to be a lawyer like him at all. So she did sort of white collar crime, you know, people ripping other people off for money. And she made a lot of money and it was kind of high profile cases. But for a variety of reasons, she gets fired, ends up back in Portland because her dad, with this huge caseload, drops dead. And so Steve's a solo, solo practitioner and somebody's got to, you know, sort of finish up his cases. And she's got it in her mind that Portland is not where she's going to stay. It's just a temporary situation. Um, she's done, she's Yeah, out. but, yeah, you know, there's know. something about Maine that just sucks you yeah, in. And, and so we'll let you go. So yeah. that's one of her conflicts, definitely, nice. in the first part of this 
book no. is, or actually through the whole book, is is she going to stay or is she going to go? Oh, that's good. That yeah. sounds really good. And you don't know when that's going to, your first book and that's going to come out, right? I don't. I'm just yes. finishing the first one. I'm getting ready to send it out to my agent, I hope in a week or two. It's yes. interesting. You come to a conference like this one yeah. and you... You hear people talking about things that you should check about your manuscript. Yeah. So I've got like all these lists of yeah. things I want to go back and double check before yeah. I send it out. I know. It's like I'm looking for the guideline for my revision. Right. Exactly. <laughs> all the tips that you're going to need. I'm hoping to get it out in the next few weeks to my agent. And then oh, I'll let you know as yeah. soon as I know. Yeah, we're very but excited. But I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a series. I've actually got two subsequent books plotted involving wow. Neva Pierce. Oh, good. It's always good to have those when you're trying to sell a book or a series to have ideas, what your ideas are for yes, the next one. Yes, and very clear ideas. So it's yeah, interesting because it's taken me a while to get to know her, as yeah, you yeah. do with the first book in any series. Mm-hmm. But now that I know her, I can't wait to write more That's about good. her. Yeah. And you while know. there are some other main crime writers in particular whose books take place in Portland, I think you're the only one whose protagonist is an attorney. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And a woman. Yeah, I haven't read any women ones. I was thinking of... Kate Flores' Thea Kozak series. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot about Thea. I forgot she was in Portland, actually. Right. But it'll be the first one, yeah, with a woman lawyer protagonist. And, uh, I like that. You know, the modern issues that she has to deal with are the modern issues that women have to deal with yeah. generally. Yes. And as, as we well as, know. yes. Yeah. And as, lo- as well as, you know, the, the first book has a two stranded plot. One part of it is she's defending some graffiti artists who. Uh, oh, ripped right from the headline. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it happens on the first page, so I don't wreck this, but one of them gets murdered uh-huh. um, by somebody who's Ooh, a really... a murder in it. And I know, a murder mystery. Fr- I have a friend who is, like, super anti-graffiti. So maybe he's, he's the, the one I would Yes, that. well, exactly, because really, it drives them crazy. Yes. And so in the book, that's exactly right. They don't right. see it as art. And, he and he's an artist, too. And he well, maybe he's a picky artist. He is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so and he thinks so that what's the other strand? The other strand involves high-end burglaries that are happening up and down the up coast of the oh. Maine. <laughs> no, up and down the coast oh, of the so Gold get Coast. Out of Portland a little bit? Gets out of Portland a little oh, bit. Cool. And, uh, and they, the two plots, of course, tie together. Of course, because they have to. They must. Yeah. That's a, yeah. So, so now you mentioned that your real estate attorney career has not been exciting as far as crime goes. But are there any crimes either that you've read about or covered as a reporter or anything in your history or that you just a type of crime that you were interested that kind of inspires or informs your writing and if the answer is no we can cut um no i think there are i I think there are i mean i did do some criminal work when i first started and i also did some work with juveniles and uh, the people in the graffiti part of this plot aren't juveniles but they're just barely adults right and i remember representing people that age and one of her conflicts and she's kicking herself about this is that this young man is killed and she's thinking i could have gotten in the way of what caused him to get killed i was trying not to you know act like their mother and yet and now he's been killed you know and so you know she's a relatively young person she's 35 years old but they're 20 so i remember that i was about that age and how Uh, young they can be and yeah and how impulsive they can be and so having that knowledge you know was really important also knowing sort of how criminals can when i did some criminal law people had an incredible ability to rationalize. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was really helpful for me in writing some of the criminal characters here because they are just masters at 
making it all seem perfectly, right. you know, rational what they're doing, and it's obviously, you know, not. And I would think as a journalist and a lawyer, that's a similarity there where you have to listen to the bullshit and sort out what's bullshit and what isn't. And that probably helps as a writer, too, to develop characters. Exactly. Well, yes, you've had that as a journalist yourself, yeah, that you yeah. hear people and they spin a story and you're thinking, oh, come on. Yeah, you know, it doesn't make sense. you yeah. think I just fell off the turnip yeah. truck. And when you're a lawyer, of course, she has to, on some level, be able to say to her clients, nobody's going to buy that. Yeah. yeah. Think of a better story. You know? <laughs> and, and she has to sort of pierce their bubble a little. But at the same time, as a writer, when I'm writing them, I mean, forget what my client does. I mean, my uh, my protagonist does. I have to, you know, make them sound real. Yeah. And people can be very, very convincing. Oh, yeah. And so to uh, tap into those really convincing yes. sociopaths who I've yeah. interviewed over the years uh, to write their characters was fun. Did you have any issues switching from having a journalist protagonist to a lawyer protagonist? You mentioned you had to get to know her a little better, but as far as your mindset for writing and voice and how the character was going to act. I did. I wanted to make sure she didn't sound like a female version of Joe, who I know very well. Now, one thing yes. is, Joe I write in first person, mm-hmm. which is was always kind of tricky in some ways, because yeah, yes. he's a guy, and I had to really figure that out. This book is all in third person, and there's multiple points of view. Oh, like and that. one thing that you'll be excited to know is that Joe Gale makes a cameo oh, good, in this good. book, because of course there's this murder, it's in I Portland, and, and, and he's a reporter got, in yeah, Portland. Somebody's got to cover it. So yeah. he comes to interview her. Oh, good. And so oh, anybody who is a fan of Joe's know that he Looking he does him. make a yeah. it's an integrated world yeah. in that sense but you know the world has to look different to her Portland has to look different to her because she's looking through different yeah. eyes mm-hmm. and particularly because she left and has come back and the place is loaded with memory for her right. you know he didn't grow up in Portland she did yeah and and for all the good and bad of that now where had she been she'd been here in Boston Oh, yeah, that's right. At a big firm, you know. So the burglary plot involves the Boston mob. Mm -hmm. And she has uh, a former colleague here in Boston who is very much a very practiced criminal uh, lawyer who has done enough work dealing with the mob who she kind of pulls in for a little help. But that's a very fraught relationship because it's somebody from her ex-firm. Oh, yeah. And and it's nice. So you get kind of out of the insular main and are able to bring in other elements to make it. Which is good for future books, too. Yes. Right. She's got more of a... More of a world to... As we know, Maine, the crime rate here is low. We've talked about this with Many times. So... You get to the point where how many people can be killed and stuff. Right, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. In 2016, there were 16 murders in Maine, but I think the Maine crime writers probably killed off 10 times. Oh, easily, <laughs> easily, easily. But I think in this book, what's interesting is having a Boston element. I mean, a lot of Maine murders, and you know this as a journalist, are crimes of passion mm-hmm. involving family members or, crimes or things of like drugs. that. Or crimes <laughs> yeah, of drugs. Yeah. And in this case, at least in the burglary subplot, it's you know, there's people who kill people for a living, and they're floating around in Maine, which is not common. Right. And yeah. so it adds an element of real menace right. to you know. There's one particularly menacing character. Oh, that's yeah. good. And and who who keeps thinking like at one point he has to 
get up very early in the morning because one of the people he's following does and he says god all these people they're up with the birds what's with these people in Maine you know and he, he just doesn't understand it and he's trying to dress like a Maine person at one point he has to <laughs> say he does he has yeah. an L.L. Bean jacket and yeah. some you know sort of uh, hiker shoes with the, and, lots of times people have this kind of caricature view of what Maine is like you have to find ways as a writer who sets your books in Maine to bring that menace how do you bring the menace right. and so it, that's a good angle that you've got there to bring it in and as you know I mean, we've talked about this before. I love two-stranded plots. Yes. I love mm-hmm. to braid two plots together. Yeah. Yes, because, you know, one is more of a subplot than the other, but braiding them together allows you to show contrast between people mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And that's really been fun for me in this book. It Again, it took a little while because I felt like I needed to know who she was and what she sounded like and how she sees the world. So, well, can you talk a little bit about how do you get to know a new character? What do you do to... I mean, I've known, like, for instance, Jerry Boyd, ends up writing like these 50 or he said once here at Crime Bake at least that he writes these like 50 page character profiles and that type of thing I mean do you do I've that? sort of I've sort of adopted I went to that same workshop and yeah. Jerry Jerry's characters are so great yeah. so I do that similarly and there's way more that I write out than I'll ever know mm-hmm. it's kind of what Chris Holmes said this morning I want you to know this guy's shoe size but then I don't need you to You're tell right, me his shoe size yes, but it, it makes yeah. me realize who she is Mm -hmm. and how she sees the world because she's not me. You know, I mean, I'm far older than she is and have really different world experience. And she, in her own background, has some traumas that didn't happen to me in my life and how those affected her. And so I write down all of those things and even wrote a couple times a couple of little scenes of something that Mm -hmm. happened that'll never ever make it into any book but it was a way that I could see how she handled something really awful happening in her life. And that way it's consistent her her actions throughout the book are going to be consistent the way she reacts you know when she reacts to something the reader will be like yeah that seems like something because you've got this person in mind and it defines who the core of her is I had to get to the core of her not just the surface and what I realized after a couple of drafts I did send it off to my agent who kicked it back and said you know some things that basically the message was I'm only getting the surface of this person yes and I need her core in order to really interest me and that was really wise advice right and it's funny because frequently as an author I get asked and you probably do too how do you research you know how do you do research and how do you research what your characters are like if they're different from you part of it isn't really research where you're going online or going to the library and looking things up but just playing a story in your head about this person's life and then saying okay if this happened in their life how are they going to react to this Mm -hmm. thing happening and it's more drawing, you know, you're always drawing from places in your brain. I think Chris Holmes said at the panel this morning, and he's a thriller writer for listeners who aren't familiar with Chris Holmes, another main crime writer, that everything you write is coming from you. Your characters aren't you, but they're coming from you. And so you have to do what you do and kind of delve into what their life is really like. That's right. And, And, you know, you and I, again, share a journalism background, and that has given us both for many years, um, you more than me, you, you were a journalist a lot longer than I was, but you had the opportunity as a journalist to be right there when really yes. intense things happen in people's lives. And you sometimes follow up with those people on mm. a follow-up story a year or two or three years later. Like to, yeah. <laughs> and you try to if you can. 
And you see how that's affected their life. I mean, I go back all the time that, yes, sometimes in writing a book that's a legal thriller, it helps to be a lawyer. There's not courtroom scenes in this particular book, but it helps to be a lawyer in terms of how lawyers work. But to me, the real touchstone for me was being a journalist because that showed me human nature in a way that few people get to see mm-hmm. you're up close and and then you can channel that particularly when you have a little distance from it and I don't know for you it's yes. made the difference when since you get out of daily journalism yes. Once you have a little distance from it, you can think, oh, yeah, that's what that does to people. That's how right. that turns mm. that person or, into a yeah. compassionate person or right. into an impatient person or into a person who has no tolerance for, you know, particular things. You kind of understand people in a right. different way. And because one of the things is you're seeing a variety, unlike maybe a criminal attorney or something, you're seeing a variety of people in a variety of circumstances, and frequently you're talking to them when the trauma is very fresh yes. and they're reacting emotionally, and I know... In a lot of books, and this is when I decided to write, I wanted to get journalism right because you see the word vultures very often in books. You know, when it comes to journalists, journalists aren't so much vultures as they're telling the story. But you store all that information about how people react when something awful has happened and when something really good has happened and to all sorts of different circumstances in life that most people aren't privy to. Right, not as up close. I mean, you see people on the worst day of their life, you see people on the best day of their life sometimes, and Mm -hmm. you're right, and you do store it in your mind, and sometimes for me as a journalist, in the immediacy of it, I didn't even understand sometimes the import of it or all the sort of um, ways that it could you know, what was all happening. But then with a little bit of reflection time, and particularly several years, I can still think back to stories I covered and think, I remember mm-hmm. the look on that mother's face. Yes. How do I put that on the page yeah. right. now? You know, when she saw her child who she thought was dead. Yes. That outpouring of relief. Right. You know, or yeah. when she, the phone rang, and she had been worried that she was going to get this terrible phone call. And to channel that, to, and so I feel like I owe a debt to some of these people yeah. whose stories I yeah. covered. They'll never know that I've synthesized it all over the years. But that really, to me, was a good training ground. Yeah, and I think, too, people wonder, you know, one of the things we get asked is, where do you get your, your ideas? Mm-hmm. And we were talking with Dick Cass about this earlier today about you can see a sentence or two sentences, like in a story in the newspaper or online, and it just sparks this idea. And I think as a journalist, something sparks an idea, but you're drawing from, oh yeah, that reminds me of a situation, and then this is what happened. And it's not so much that you're replaying or rewriting things that happened to you, but it's kind of sparking that imagination. Absolutely. I mean, the journalist piece for me really exposed me to so much stuff, and at the time I had no idea what a goldmine it was in terms of having insight into people you know sometimes uh, some parts of it I was so young I'm not sure I really appreciated just how valuable Mm -hmm. that was but when I was at Northeastern uh, which is where I went to undergraduate school I studied with um, uh, creative writing with Robert B. Parker who at the time was early in his writing career he'd published a few books but he hadn't quit teaching so it I think he quit teaching maybe my senior right. year once wow. they can quit the day job and yeah be a writer you know they've he was it. on the cusp he was on the cusp so this is a lot a lot of years ago now yeah. and one of the things I remember him saying is all the experiences you have in your life you know are fodder yeah yes. and so hang on to them and some of them you're going to twist in ways and you're going to you know shape in ways if you're going to be writing fiction but 
hang on to that. You know, yes. don't throw anything, any experience away, and, and be looking at it with a writer's eye. Yeah. You know? Now, do you, even though it's a different kind of law, obviously, that your protagonists practice, did you feel there were things about the law or practice of the law or being an attorney that you wanted to say in your books that you felt was you had seen depicted in ways you didn't like in other books or on TV? Well, yes. I mean, she's a criminal defense lawyer. And in one of the one of the other characters is a, a homicide detective who had, you know, she has a lot of friction with. And it comes clear in the beginning that he had a lot of friction with her father as well. Then as you get into the book, you find out that actually his relationship with her father was more complicated than that. Because they were on opposite sides of cases for enough years that they developed some insight and even some compassion for each other. And at one point, he gives a little speech to her about how the criminal justice system is kind of a complex ecosystem where there are lawyers on both sides, prosecutor and in defense, and there are judges and there are witnesses and there are cops. And all of them are trying to find their way towards some kind of justice. And sometimes they seem to be working at cross purposes, but in the best of all worlds, they're not. And, you know, she makes some crack about what are you teaching, you know, policing 101 over at the community college (laughs) or something. Is this your opening night lecture? But really what he's trying to say to her is, I'm not your enemy. If we're both after justice... You're supposed to be working both for the same goal. yeah, Yeah, you are on one side of the table. I'm on the other side of the table. If you play fair, I'm not your enemy. Yeah. And they end up starting to develop in this first book a somewhat complicated relationship between them that will continue in future books because I think that's a great foil between a cop and a defense attorney because there are cops who will say, if they're just talking sort of off the top of their head, oh, yeah, the defense bar, those people drive me crazy. But when you start digging down, there are some who they respect and there are some who they don't. They've been through, I used to work for a defense attorney and they deal with each other all the time. The defense attorneys and the cops, I mean, they're all remain the same. The defendants come and go and they see each other all the time and sometimes they're friends, Mm -hmm. even though they're on opposite Size and sometimes they're not. It's interesting just when I started working with him to realize it's not really like on TV where there are these adversaries all the time, even in personal life. In the personal life, a lot of times they're friendly, you know, they're in the same line of work, different, you know. Different side of the table. But as you were saying, I mean, being in Maine, I can also, that's especially true in Maine. And that's one of her things she thinks about. In Boston, you didn't have that constant contact with the same group from the DA's office, because it's a huge DA's office in Suffolk County, Boston, you know. But in Cumberland County, Maine, you know, there's a handful of prosecutors, and you do, and some of them you went to law school with, or you went to law school with their brother or sister, you know. And so it is, and to me, that was one of the truest things that came out when I was writing the book is, it is a complex ecosystem, yeah, and I want people to understand that. They're complex relationships. Between Which yeah. makes books more interesting. Yes, I think one of the definitely. things that makes any book of any genre interesting are complex relationships between people and how they navigate it, kind of the misunderstandings, but also then the growth, you yes. know, and mm-hmm. the things that happen. Right, that they have to find a way to rethink their initial assumptions. Right. Yeah, and exactly. Because as we know that characters drive plots, and a lot of the little things that happen between characters 
add to the plot going forward and developing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely. And it looks like we're about out of time, but do you want to remind our readers who you are and also say the names of your Joe Gale books yes. that they can find? Well, thank you. I'm Brenda Buchanan, and my three books in my Joe Gale series, the first one is called Quick Pivot. The second one is called Cover Story, and it's a murder trial book that takes place in Down East Maine. Yeah. And the third one is called Truth Beat, and that's also back in the Portland area. And they're all available through Karina Press. They're also available through Amazon, Amazon of course, yeah. or any uh, any place else that yeah. ebooks. I-books, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Anywhere that you can find uh, digital books. And my new series, uh, my working title for the first book is Big Fish. Oh, its like protagonist that. is Neva Pierce. We'll see if her name and the book's name uh, survive but uh, and we hope it finds the light of day and if it does we will let our listeners know I will be very happy about that thanks and have a great crime bake well thank you so much this was a great conversation thank you (laughs) we have Barb Ross with us so Barb why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what kind of books you write Okay, so long-time listener, first-time guest. Yes, yes, thanks, an actual listener to our podcast. Is it appropriate to say that? Yes, yes. So my name is Barbara Ross, and I write a series of mysteries about a family that owns, uh, that runs a clam bake on a private island off the coast of Maine. The category of mystery is cozy culinary. Oh, oh, oh so there's a subgenre. Yeah. yeah, it's actually a sub subgenre. Wow. Yes, yeah. because it's culinary because they're recipes, and it's cozy, uh, which is a subgenre of the traditional mystery. And typically, in cozy, sex and violence take place off the right. page. And one thing we noticed is your latest one is ice out. Your latest one. Yes. There is no cat yeah. on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed a lot of the cozies have cats. Or you know, the only one that has a cat on the cover oh, is Fogged In, and that has sold very well yes. and was nominated for an and Agatha. the cat is actually in the book. <laughs> yeah, the cat is in the book, because last year there was a book that had two corgis on the cover that I bought. That you bought, no and I was all like, there are no corgis in the book. So, so part of that's the, vari- the variations of publishing, yes. so I've had a number of my friends be very shocked to see their covers that have cats or dogs, <laughs> or the covers in summer and the books in winter. Oh, yeah. And a lot of times, not summer, winter, but the cat, you can go back and add it. I never wanted a cat, but I went to the Cabbage Island Clambake, which is a real clambake mm. that's run on a private island mm. off the coast of Maine. And there was a cat there. And I was like, this is the life. You're at the top of your food chain. <laughs> yeah. There's no cars. You can wander freely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And all the little old ladies are like sneaking you lobster yeah. and yeah. Pl- steamers under the table. I was like, I have to have a cat now because this is like, it's like a cat's heaven. Yes, that's true. Or you have to be a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know how possible it is. <laughs> but, so, your latest one, Ice... Under. Uh, Ice Under, that's right. I think I called it Ice Out. I was thinking of Ice Out. <laughs> Ice Under. And when did that come out? That came out at the end of December 2016. Okay. So, do you have another one? Yes. Stowed Away comes out end of December 2017. Oh, so in uh, a little over a month then. Yes, So, very how many soon. books are in this series so far? 
Stowed Away will be the sixth book in the okay. series, and then there's a holiday novella in a collection oh. called Eggnog Murder that just came out in mass market oh, paperback wow. a couple yeah. days ago. Oh, great. Yeah. So even though you write cozies, and which are gentler, I guess, than a lot of traditional mysteries and definitely than thrillers or, you know, noir, are there certain crimes, real crimes that have happened or types of crimes that you're interested in or that help inform your writing? Well, cozies typically, and all traditional mysteries to some degree, take place within a community. So unlike a thriller, it's never going to be the Russian mob or the CIA mm-hmm. or a Colombian drug cartel. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's, it's always going, the suspects, victim, and perpetrator are in general known to one another. Right. So what's interesting is it's that actually, fortunately, fairly rare subclass of crime that takes place within a community. Although in Maine, although in Maine, unfortunately, it's domestic. Right. And in general, actual domestic violence doesn't make a good mystery because so often the perpetrator is so obvious. Yeah, it is, and that's one way that traditional mysteries are different than real yes. life because in real life it's usually the yeah, guy standing yeah. over the body right. with a knife although in real life i was reminded because i read fogden and there was that story recently of the young girl that was found in a freezer yes and was it in chicago or something yeah i can't remember there have been a few of those and I was actually like, hey. mm. My husband, when we moved to Somerville from Newton in Massachusetts 13 years ago, we bought our appliances on the Massachusetts tax holiday. So we went out and bought all, and it was a two-family, so we bought a lot of appliances. And of course, as they always are, our contractor was very optimistic about when we would need (laughs) these appliances, so we ended up putting them in a storage unit. And my husband pulled into the parking lot of the storage unit one morning, and there were cops everywhere. And it was a woman who had made a deathbed confession to her daughters. You know, when I said dad walked out on us, and she had murdered him in the West. I can't remember which state in the West. And had her stuff shipped to this storage unit, and dad had been in the freezer the whole time. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, can you imagine? I always see it more from the daughter's perspective. Can you imagine? You're all huddled by your mother's deathbed, and she's like, oh, by the way. So did that inspire that story? Only in a very subliminal way. I always try to mix it up. I don't want my books to be formulaic. And in that one, there are several non-formulaic things, but one of the things is I wanted to drop the body in the first sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first sentence is something like, Julia, there's a stiff yeah. in the walk-in. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to do that right away, yeah. and that was really the inspiration. I really liked that book, as I said before, when I recommended it on one of our shows. We so. did, yeah. I, I think we had an argument over what a what clan bake was I don't know but um I don't always read cozies although I like them I just I don't know why but I did enjoy it very much some of them can be formulated yes. some any mysteries and can be formulated in fact I was gonna I was gonna ask that too do you feel as someone who writes cozies do you feel it's a challenge to stay within the strictures I guess of the subgenre with I hate to sound, I sound like a professor but I'm not. No, I understand what you so I think it depends a lot on your publishing house and your 
editor. My editor has never said to me, you'll hear a lot of rules like you can't have more than one body or you have to murder someone terrible. I never, my victim is never terrible and my killer is never terrible. Well, see, that makes it more interesting. And that makes it more interesting for me. But the one thing that's so hard in any amateur sleuth, whether cozy or not, is how do you re-engage the character time after time. You know, you always feel like in Murder, She Wrote, it's like, why does anyone invite that woman to dinner? (laughs) Um, And so you have that challenge, and I feel like that's kind of the gimme. That's kind of the deal between me and the reader. It's like, she lives in a tiny town. Somehow be involved in every murder that happens. Right. It's, well, I feel that town. that readers of mysteries understand whether it's a cozy or you know traditional amateur scene right. or whatever that yeah there's going to be more murders in this town or in this area <laughs> than there are in real life. <laughs> right. But it's we're, it's a book. But how with the family owning the clam bake? How do they come across these? Murders. So I said, when I visited the real Clambake a year ago... Were there I said, any murders at it? <laughs> I said to the owner, only don't worry, I've only plants. killed one person on the island. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, well, as long as you don't kill me, yeah, yeah. do whatever but you I want. Can as long as I people. don't get food poisoning and give us a bad reputation. Yeah. Oh, there's a good plot right there. I haven't done that yet. Yeah. What I like about it is that I... In a seasonal town, people are always coming and yes. going. And many times people do go to the kind of roll down to the end of the road for reasons. You know, they go as far as they can yeah. go and on land and they stop. So the tourists and the retirees and all bring me, the tour guides all bring me new people. So you're killing people from away. <laughs> um, I've, I think I've varied it. I've mixed it up, but yes, sometimes I'm killing people from away. Yeah. Of course, the main definition of from away is anyone who wasn't born yeah, there. Yeah, so yeah, that gives you a that. big con- yeah. campus. But the other thing is when you have a seasonal community like that, too, when it comes to the winter months, like in Fogged In, the community becomes extremely small. Yes. And also... You can't really go anywhere if you're snowed in, if it's, yeah. So that also makes an interesting dynamic that if something happens, then it's somebody, it's, it's one of us. It's almost like an Agatha Christie kind yes. of closed room kind yeah. of right. mystery. It's a relief. So I wrote three books during the season, and then I wrote two books and a novella in the off season. One of the huge reliefs about the off season is that my sleuth actually has time to solve the <laughs> mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you figure during the season, she's, she's in a tour. Forest town. She's yeah. working like 14 hours, seven days a week. Yeah. When the hell yeah. when is she going to <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So that solved that problem. So that was really nice. Yeah. Now I'm back writing about the summer, so I'm yeah. stuck with that problem again. But do you find, you know, there's the, that old, and we talk about it all the time at conferences and on this podcast, how, you know, Maine is a relatively crime-free state and there are very few murders. What makes Maine so interesting to mystery writers and readers and i think it's a really good point you made that it's the end of the road for a lot of people Mm -hmm. so it ends up being a destination for people who are looking to get somewhere remote or something but more than that what do you think i mean why did you choose to put your books in maine well my mother-in-law in the 1980s my mother-in-law went to camden maine for the day with a girlfriend <laughs> and they bought 
I know these two women, so I'm sure they stopped at every gift shop, bookstore, yeah. <laughs> souvenir shop, antique store. And there's a lot in Camden. And that keeps you busy. So it got too late to go home, and they stayed overnight in a bed and breakfast. And the next morning, my mother-in-law got up, and the owner was lamenting the fact that he had to sell. That's just like in a book. <laughs> and she said, I'll buy it. Oh, my and God. And she did. And she had never said she wanted to live in Maine. She was kind of a Cape Cod person. She had never said she wanted to be in the hospitality industry. I mean, we were all... Our no mouths idea. were hanging. Out. She, she'd been relatively recently widowed, which I think mm, gives oh, you yeah. a different perspective on life. So she ran this bed and breakfast in Booth Bay Harbor. And my husband and I, long story, I call it momentrage, but my husband <laughs> and I ended up buying it. She ended up living with us and our two family in Somerville. So I'm sitting on this giant porch overlooking this harbor. I'm writing mysteries. And I think I should have a mystery set here. Yeah. And my agent was looking for people to write what they call spec proposals. So a proposal in three sample chapters. And he had some ideas, but they were speculative because he wasn't sure publishers would buy them. So the mm-hmm. idea is you put in your time, he puts in his time. And you see what happens. And you see what happens. And so his first idea he actually gave to Jesse Crockett, who wrote her Maple Syrup series. Oh, yeah. And okay. then his second idea was Nantucket Cookie and Fudge Company. Mm. And I was like, I can't afford... I can afford. think of some limericks that would work with that. <laughs> oh, God. I was like, I cannot thing. afford to Go. do research on Nantucket, yeah. and I cannot afford to do research on cookies and fudge. Oh, my yeah. God. So cookies I was like, pass. Yeah. So then it was Block Island Bicycle Rental, mm. and I was like, how many people can I kill on Block Island? Yeah. That So his third thing he said was clam bake. And Lee Wade, who's a friend of all of right. ours, had told me that her daughter had had her wedding reception at a private island that Ooh. did a clam bake. So I was like, that's it. There you go. And that's why I chose the clam bake. But I had in my mind that I wanted to write. And I do think Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Murder, She Wrote, I do think that people, my friend Sheila Conley says, there's a New England of the mind. Yes. So we yes. all know the New England we live in. Yes. But there's also most North Americans carry in that. And it's nice because Maine includes Canadians too. Mm-hmm. Carry in their mind this imaginary New England, yeah. mm-hmm. and that attracts readers. Yeah. It's mysterious. A part of it's the landscape too. With our coast is so there's Long, so many dragons and, and crannies. Yes, yep. and you think of like even even things like dark shadows took yep. place in Maine. Yep, and I always remember the beginning. Of, yes, with the waves crashing. Although that was the remember the, the secret, secret storm. storm. I think. We have the same brain. (laughs) We were talking about that earlier. Yeah, I think it's part of it is just the atmosphere. But like you're saying, it's the connotations and stuff you get. It's not... Well, actually what it's like. not what it's we not live like, day you know, to a day lot of creepy people <laughs> right. well do you try to get some of that i know people have this main of the mind and you're on the coast and everything so it's this very right it tra- kind of traditional and evocative main but do you try to get any of the like real main i do one of the things i play with a lot which is i think a very hard topic for americans is class. Yes. And particularly in any seasonal resort, it's not just Maine, but in any seasonal resort, you have the people who come to enjoy themselves and take their time off in the county I live in in Maine, basically the entire coast 
has been purchased by people yes. with massive yes. amounts of money, mm-hmm. but you only have to go half a mile from where they live or less. To see somebody living in a trailer exactly. with a washing machine out in the yard. Yeah, in the one that's coming out in December, I describe the island that these people live on, and it's not like an island island. It's an island connected by bridges yeah. as being like a peach, you know, with the gorgeous outside is just beautiful mm-hmm. and plump and juicy and the inside is this hard yeah, pit that's good. I like because that. if you don't have a view it's the state that has some of, some of the wealthiest people in the country come here and some of the poorest people in exactly. the country live here and they live side by side and it's so dependent despite other industries on those wealthy people being here and they're here on either on vacation or in their summer home. And the people, like the people in your books, are working their butts off exactly. 14 hours a day. Right. I always see it like a duck, you know? What you see is the upper part of the duck gliding yeah, across the water, and you don't see all that motion. Yeah. But a lot of people in my part of Maine have three jobs during the season. Yes. Because yeah. it's like putting away nuts for yeah. them. So yeah. they only didn't they just give you your up. hamburger, but now they're going to run and make your bed right. somewhere right. else. And I have a character who works as a bouncer in a bar, and he owns a cab. So he will very frequently take someone's keys, <laughs> and then when they leave, oh, like he will have... And that's based on a... It's not based on a real person, but it's right based on a situation in my town. We do have a cab driver who is also a bouncer. And what do your characters do in the winter? So <laughs> they have a, No, I was just going to say because there was an article in the paper recently about a restaurant in Portland that is some kind of restaurant during the day and then at night it's like a bar or a restaurant which is similar to well, what I got the idea yeah. for Barb's book. <laughs> so they run a dinner restaurant which is intended it's a young couple. But uh, yes my, my protagonist and her boyfriend run a dinner restaurant. Partially that was intended to provide a gathering yes, place for the community for people, so yes. you, you know how these small well, you've yes. lived in, in a seasonal yes. town. there's one place. The yes. post office. The dump. The dump. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So to give people a place to gather, but also to come up with these yeah. recipes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you have to come up with the recipes too? Well, I don't. Well, uh, that's another story. My husband actually comes up with oh, the recipes. Oh, good for him. He's a much better cook. I am not very do interested. You have a recipe, <laughs> do you have a recipe quota for each book? No, or but I'm always panicking about the length. So uh, the more panicked I am about the length, the more recipes. Uh-huh. And it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes the book is longer than I think it is, and I didn't need all those recipes. But the more <laughs> but like freaked like out them. I am, people like recipes. Them. They do. And I thought because I'm not a cook. Well, first of all, I thought clam bake. That's the same meal <laughs> right, every, every single meal. time. Like, <laughs> sometimes you wonder, like these agents and editors, do they ever like go north of 105th Street? Because so I thought, well, whatever she eats, she's not going to eat at the clam bake all the time. Yeah, whatever she true. eats is what the recipes will be, and they'll be seasonal. They'll be really seasonal and showcase main type yeah. food. So that's what I did. But with the <laughs> restaurant, I had to come up. Well, as the series goes on, you must get more and more challenged about. Coming up with recipes. Don't get her stressed out. Yeah. I think that's true because when you sign a contract for a series, you never know. Mm -hmm. So in the first three, it's like everything that we eat in Maine, put it in. And now, of course, I wish I had held a few of those back. Like a bunch of different, like I always think of desserts because no matter what else you're eating, you can always come up with like desserts. And cocktails too. Yeah. Yeah, Since I'm not a cook, I thought the recipes were just there for atmosphere. In my books, they're at the end. I don't like it when they break up the flow. But then I would get these 
emails from people that lived in Montana and had driven 45 minutes to Costco to get frozen <laughs> yeah, lobster. Yeah. And I was, and you're just like, oh my God, oh they're my actually gosh. making these. <laughs> and if this is terrible, nice. I'm going to oh, feel awful. And one thing I found too is an editor, I did a lot of editing for Adams Media, which is now an imprint of F&W, yeah. but it, I don't think it was at the time. But they do nonfiction books, and I edited, I would edit recipe books. And boy, it is tough because if it's a teaspoon of salt and somebody's put an extra letter or something <laughs> and it's a tablespoon of salt, you're in trouble. Mm. So that must be a challenge too. For yeah, and so we always sure. make them and we, it is. And there is a typo actually in one of the Uh-oh. recipes in one of my books. And fortunately, most people pick it up. It's one of those things that you look at and you go. And so I've corrected it on my website and stuff. But yeah, it's a, it's a typo. Yeah. So it is really scary. And people who really do cookbooks you know you make the recipe and then you have someone else make it blind and then you send it to someone who's not a cook to see if they can it's a huge process being a real cookbook author i don't quite do all that but we do make them and then we make them again to make sure that we can it's one of the things that makes i mean in some ways being a fiction writer it's not easy but i was talking to somebody earlier today she had fictionalized a murder that took place up in waterville at colby college decades ago and somebody said, oh, is that a true crime book? And she's like, oh, no, it's fiction. And I said, true crime is so much harder because of the research you have to do and the reporting you have to do. And thinking about your recipes, it almost adds that kind of harder nonfiction, non-fiction element. element. So you have to get it exactly right instead of letting your imagination right. work it. Because people are going to actually take you to task if it's not. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And people, I mean, if there's a fiction thing that they don't think rings true, they just kind of be like, yeah, well. Or well, they take you to task about that, but you yeah. can usually defend it. But if you have a, like, hey. a cup of salt and it's supposed to be sugar, <laughs> then it's hard to defend. That. Yeah. But it back, is very but hard back to, to the crime. Back originally when I asked you about crimes, do you look on the internet or in the papers for crime stories? Do you read true crime? Are you a kind of a crime aficionado or is it just kind of not? I think that most crimes are awful and dull Mm -hmm. and not anything you'd want to read or write about. Yes. So I read the police blotter yeah, and the I local the paper yeah. because those are not usually murders. They're just the weird Silly stuff that happens. Yeah. Yes, and um, the smaller the town, the weirder the police right. log is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I always read those. I don't watch true crime at all on TV, and it wasn't until Serial that I discovered I had any interest in true crime podcasts. And I don't know why what comes in my ears works better. All my books are in audio, and I know last year at Crime Bake when the people from Crime On... Crime Writers On, yeah. Yeah, all said that they were selling really well in audio. I think it's that people who like to take information in in a certain way. But also, I used to listen to a lot of audiobooks while I did. I'm an artist, so while I did artwork or Mm -hmm. while I was working around the house, I would... And now I listen to podcasts a lot, and it allows you to do something else while you're listening. Right. And if I'm reading a book, I am actually, I have to be focused on that yep. to read. Appeal but of, that's appeal of audio, not necessarily the appeal of true crime. Oh, that's Right, true. that's yeah. true. So I didn't know I had an interest in true yeah. crime. What I really like about what you guys do, when you start out in particular, but even now, 
a lot of times you've focused on New England. Yeah. Not all the time. But if you're a casual consumer of news, you know, there's stories when the event happens, and then there's maybe stories again if there's an arrest, and then there's maybe stories down the road if there's a trial. But what you guys do is you kind of put that all together in a consumable place, which as someone who just follows the news, you wouldn't get that. that was yeah that was our original because we felt we had to have we we're not just oh we're going to talk about true crime but we had to have some kind of specific thing was to take stuff you may have heard about in the news or read about in people magazine or something and do a lot more research yeah and, that's what i which, really which enjoyed tried, about it and since i'm new to maine too yes. like you've caught me up on some like the <laughs> Sandmore case which was just oh, a headline in the press herald two days crazy. ago but i knew all about it because yes, of you well, guys you. Yeah, which yes. i wouldn't have yes. because that in fact i feel all. like now are you now just recently a full-time Mainer? Yes. yes. Just, You're welcome. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. End of September, my husband Portland, and I moved to Portland. What made you want to live in Maine full-time? You know, people have asked me that, and I wish I had an easy answer. Because we had this house in Booth Bay, we had stopped in Portland a bunch of times, and even, like, in the 80s when we used to camp on Sebago with our kids, mm. there would be, like, the day in Portland. Yeah. We'd go to the movie if it's yeah. raining. we go to the movies at the yeah. main mall yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I even liked it then when it was a little more CD down on yeah. its luck. Not yeah. as hip and happening. <laughs> Not as hip and happening. So we always had that affinity. And then my daughter got married in Portland, mm. and we ended up spending a lot more time in Portland. I don't know. And we're city people. I think one of the things was we have this house in Booth Bay that was my mother-in-law's dream. Right. It was her dream to live in a huge Victorian house with, on a double lot on the water. Mm. And I just look at that and I go, oh. The heating bill. The heating bill, the roof, the yeah, yeah. something is always falling off that house. Right. So that wasn't our dream. So we're much more city people. I like being in the city. And even it's a small city, it still has... It's It's pretty, and it has its kind of old wealth, which gives you an art museum. It gives you all those things that old money brought. And interesting architecture. And 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 one of the neat, fascinating architecture. So welcome to Maine. Thank you. Do you want to remind readers what the titles of your books are and where they can find them? Sure. So it's the Maine Clambake Mysteries series. There are five, soon to be six, out. They are clammed up, boiled over, muscled out. Fogged in, iced under, and soon to be stowed away. Also the anthology Eggnog Murders. And you can get them pretty much anywhere, including in many fine independent bookstores yes. in Maine. Uh, yes, <laughs> we right. like to push the bookstores. So, well, thanks for being well, here. Well, thank you for having me. So nice to talk to you guys. <laughs> Do you go by Bruce Robert Coffin or just Bruce? It's all marketing. Yeah. Bruce Robert Coffin. Bruce Robert Coffin. Yes. Why is that? Was there another Bruce Coffin? There are a number of Bruce Coffins, and some are actually published. Yeah. And, oh, wow. And I am 12th generation Tristram Coffin off the boat in Nantucket. So oh. Robert Peter Tristram Coffin. The Pulitzer Prize-winning poet oh, uh, yeah, is, was, was my great-grandfather's oh. cousin. See, now oh. I thought Coffin was an Irish name. 
No. Oh, sorry. No. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to. But I have I have uh, <laughs> Scottish uh, on my oh. mother's side of the family. Mm. So why don't you first say what you write, okay. what your books are, and what your background is, because it's very interesting. Well, I am a retired detective sergeant yeah. from the Portland, Maine Police Department. I ran the homicide and violent crime uh, detectives. I worked there for 28 years and retired mm-hmm. in 2012. And curiously enough, my original plan for my future was to be, become a writer. I went to college to be a writer. And as so often happens in those young plans of ours, mine was thwarted uh, by, a, by a monstrous brick wall that looked curiously like my creative writing professor. And the, the message was clear that I was unable to write. I was uh, not a writer. So you let one person... It was the most important person, though, for my yeah, college yeah, years. Especially when you're young. Yeah. It didn't take much to derail me. I had many other distractions, including my... At that time, she wasn't, but now she's my wife. Yeah. Uh, a lovely woman, by the way. Thank you. We, we She'd like love her. to hear that, we so like I'll make sure she listens. Like Obviously, after having met you, a very... Patient uh, woman? Pa- yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we're just kidding. She must She's be a, a saint. Person. She is yeah. a saint. St. Karen. <laughs> yeah. So I changed course and became a police officer, and that led me to a pretty storied career. I did a lot of things. I was very lucky. After 9-11, I worked for the FBI as part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force for the Mm. Boston Division for four years. And as I said, when I retired from the police department, I ran the Homicide and Violent Crime Detectives and Evidence Technician Unit. So you have a lot of stuff. Stuff. I have a lot (laughs) of stuff. That grits for your writing. A lot of stuff. Is there anything, like, we asked some of the other writers what kind of crimes inspired. That's kind of a dumb thing to ask somebody who was a cop for almost 30 years. But do you feel like what you experienced as a police officer really isn't something you want to put in mystery novels and you have kind of a different view of it? Do you understand what I'm asking? I do. It's, it's sort of a two-part thing you're asking. One is, a question I get quite often is, have I ever considered or would I ever write true crime novels? Yeah. And I think... For two reasons, I wouldn't want to do that. One is, unless, well, unless there was a, a beneficial reason for either society as a whole or the family that was left behind by the victim, I wouldn't want to take the chance on writing true crime and bringing more pain to the yeah. families left mm-hmm. behind. And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that that happens when you write true crime, right. but that's something that I'm worried about. And I think the other thing is that I just spent three decades investigating true crime and writing fiction for me is actually an escape. Yeah. Even though I'm writing murders, it's just, it's an escape. It's not the same. You can make it work out the way yeah. you want it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, I wouldn't want to write true crime because it just seems like too much work. <laughs> Unless it's something you worked on, yeah, I guess. Yeah, to do a lot of right. research and interview. So how much of your experience as a cop goes into your John Byron series? I mean, obviously, you know, the relationships mm-hmm. with other cops, the relationships with people on the street, that seems to be A great something. deal, a great yeah. deal. I mean, really, the plot lines are fictional. I mean, I want to be able to have fun with that and yeah. write an entertaining not tale. from the headlines. No, 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 no law and order here. Yeah. Although it would be cool to have some theme music, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. But no. Oh, really, for me, it's I want to populate these stories with as much real experience as I possibly can. So I include the politics of the job. I yeah. include the stresses of the job. What it's like for John Byron and Diane Joyner and the other detectives to try and hold down some semblance of a normal existence outside of the job yeah. while doing that job. Yeah. Um, how hard that is for people. And then I think the, the ups and downs and the stresses of the job while investigating a case, uh, the highs and lows, the horror, the elation when things finally go the right way. Right. I try to put all of that in there. So that's a lot of that is kind of character and tone 
type stuff, do you feel that that's, you must because you just talked about it, that that's as important as figuring out a plot and all the little details of the plot and everything? I do. I, I do because I think, I almost hate the genre idea. I mean, oh, yeah. I, get, I guess you have yeah. to put a book somewhere, yeah. yeah. but I almost hate that because I find with a wide variety of reading tastes that the one thing that seems to be a constant when you're talking about writing or reading is the ability to reach out on a personal level to the reader and Mm -hmm. and sharing your own personal experiences and anguish and joy and all those things. And I think regardless of what the writing is about, if you can reach the reader on a personal level through things that they understand, that they've experienced themselves and say, exactly, then no matter what you're writing, it's going to touch the reader on a personal level. Even genre fiction, which, you know, somehow gets a a low grade. It's not literary. Now, Portland is a, it's a city, but it's a small, small. And do people, people you've worked with in the past or people you know who've read your book try to get you to tell them who is this or that so-and-so was so-and-so, weren't they? Yeah. Right, yeah. And they, like, they do that no. all the time. <laughs> they do it all the time. And I always point to the beginning of the book where HarperCollins has a disclaimer about everything is fictional in yeah. this. And, and yeah. No, I mean, in reality, I have built these characters. Yeah. They are compilations of people that I worked with, yeah. Yeah, which is people almost. I was trained by. Yeah. And obviously, part of me is in every one of these characters. Yeah. Yes. There's no way you can not do that. Really so I've really, else. male and female, I had a lot of role models throughout mm-hmm. my career. And I've tried to instill those traits, good and bad, with my characters to make now, them real. So they're usually would, a piece of everybody as opposed to one person. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. I think most writers will tell you that, that they don't that. take... a one real person and make it a person yeah. in their book. But you also made an interesting decision to have an interracial relationship. As a lot of our listeners know from listening to us, Maine is a very white state. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a cool decision. And what led you to decide to do that? You know, I've, I think I've gotten lucky in a lot of ways. I've done a lot of things correctly totally by accident, yeah. <laughs> as probably most writers do. I just felt like I wanted to try and build a team of investigators that was indicative of the team I worked with. Even though Maine is, like you say, a, a fairly white state, or however we can term that, I worked with a lot of minorities. I worked with men and women. I worked with people of different sexual orientation. Yeah. I worked with people of different religious backgrounds. And the one thing that I think sometimes gets lost, because as a society, we love to paint with a broad brush. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what we're talking yeah. about. And then we condemn other people for doing it. I worked with a very diverse crowd of people and it was really fun because it never felt like if there was an us and them, it was the badge and those without a badge because you always felt like you were on the defensive end of things when you're being quarterbacked in the media or quarterbacked here or quarterbacked there. I mean, that's just, if you're in the public eye, that's what happens. Right. But we all felt, no matter where we came from or what we were for an identity, we all felt like part of the same team. And I love that. I mean, it shows you can bring all those different backgrounds together and make us a very cohesive unit and a formidable unit in that we, good luck pulling one over on us. I mean, think about all the things we're bringing to the table. So I wanted to be able to paint that same picture in the John Byron novels. And Diane Joyner, for me, was almost a logical step. I wanted to be able to have a vehicle to explore different themes and issues. Melissa Stevens, Detective Melissa Stevens, yeah. is a gay female, yeah. and she's paired with a wisecracking, inappropriate, balding mm-hmm. father of two. Well, those people don't exist. Right, and, <laughs> and, and they really, I mean, I really did. I've taken a lot of things from the people that yeah. I worked with to create that team, and I, to me, I think that's a more realistic vision of what, what society is and what the police departments yeah. hope to be. And I think 
the neat thing in your books that comes across, like that whole team and bonding. And I yes. don't know if someone who hadn't been a police officer or worked for yeah, a police department could have done it or if it would have come off as realistically as you as you make it i feel like that's a big theme in your books they are a team you know the way they work together do you get a lot of feedback from readers on that the feedback i get from readers that are not have no law enforcement background is that it's an eye-opening thing and they all want to know if that's yeah. the way it really is yeah. And the one I get from law enforcement, you know, I get a lot of... Actually, it's funny that you asked that question. In the second novel, I really explore Diane Joyner's character, and, and she has a large, much larger stage than she had in the yeah. first. Mm-hmm. As writers, you all know what happens to the secondary protagonist. They want to steal the show. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So Diane is no different, and yeah. I was amazed at how much fun I was having writing her character and yeah. making her that strong female voice. Oh, that's good. And so I explored a lot of the issues surrounding how she is thought about by her superiors and whether or not they look at her as something that they can use as a billboard or yeah. that kind of thing and the effect that it has on her. Oh, and so, good. and I've, I've lost track of your question. It so was, often I lost track of it too, but that was a good answer to it. But yeah. I mean, really, I, I like to be able to explore that and I think those are things that are important. Melissa's sexuality doesn't matter in police work. Diane's race doesn't matter in police work. Yeah. It shouldn't matter anywhere. It yeah. shouldn't. In police work, I think they're so focused on what they're doing. Right. More yeah. than right. if you were should, at you yeah. know, a grocery store. Or... Now, do you enjoy watching police TV shows, or do they bug I just know our brother's a lawyer, and he, he won't watch lawyer shows. He doesn't like to And watch. I used to hate journalist shows. Yeah. So, so. I treat them probably like you do in those in those regards. I think I treat them as if I was watching Star Trek. Yeah. It, it's very entertaining, <laughs> but I have to suspend belief yeah. to be able to and actually watch them, it. I just you know? would think, I mean, there aren't really any shows about kitchen designers. <laughs> well, there's a niche for you. There you I go. would think that it would just be Because people don't get things right about... Yeah. Were there anything, aside from what we were talking about, when you started writing your books, did you have things you wanted to say, either little things or big things that you felt were important to you to say? In- you know, I didn't start out like that. I think it's typical that you sort of develop as you get into an art form about how where you want to take things or what motivates you for each different story. I didn't start out like that. I just wanted to tell entertaining tales, and I wanted to be able to paint this imaginary world I created as realistically as possible and populate it with people that feel very real to you and feel very real to me and then tell the stories still solving the crime in 400 pages, but tell the story (laughs) as accurately as I could. As this has gone on, I have begun to develop, I think, my thought process is different. I put a lot more thought into if I have something to say or not. The second book changed in that really the murder at the beginning of Paul Ramsey, who was, who was the brilliant trial attorney and less than desirable in every other aspect of his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the message... We've never known any of those. <laughs> <laughs> the underlying message there, I think, was really to be able to show the reader that police officers don't get to pick and choose who their homicide victims are. And you still have to yeah. attack and go after the person responsible as bad, whether it's a person who's despicable or it's a really nice person. Yeah, and Paul Ramsey's dying, not. Like in the, right, yeah. and you you have to go after the truth because that's what yeah. you're after. At the end of the day, we're not responsible for anything other than bringing the truth to the that's table. Right. So I wanted to be able to show that. And then the third one, I think I bit off even more of the apple, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's been stressful for me to write. It's It's been uh, personal for me to write. Uh, some of the scenes have actually been emotional to write. Wow. And I'm attacking what I think... All your stories start with what if. I've sat back and felt like 
even though I, I earned my retirement and well went well past my minimum time I had to do, I have felt since I've been watching things go downhill the last two or three years with the feelings of the public about the police, knowing that a lot of it is very erroneous, I think I have felt like a person who's watched their unit go back overseas after two tours with me, and yeah. I'm sitting here watching them and hoping that they make it out in one piece. Right. So my what if for the third story really was the impetus was all of that yeah and i said well what if what if that happens in portland maine how will that go down ah. how will the lives of everybody involved oh be that affected? sounds really good when's so, that coming and it's out tentatively titled beyond the truth oh nice so i nice. thought well i'm the prepositional phrase guy I know, that's the thing. Right? no yeah. yeah she always has to think of things with news when when is that coming out are you still working on it right? i am so it's almost done it's almost <laughs> done they're looking at the end of june if we're lucky okay. if everything oh, goes well yeah, yeah. Okay, i know good. my editor is excited about it i think because of what i'm attacking i think I'm apprehensive about it. I'm hoping that people really enjoy it and, and get it. I don't. Want, I never want to be preachy in these books. I feel like sometimes the television shows, like Law and Order, loves to be yeah, preachy. They they're make very, their yeah, they're very. Yeah, they're kind of too much. But if yeah. you tell the story well, right. then readers they can make up their own mind. Make right. When you were still working in law enforcement, did you say, okay, when I retire, I'll then I'll start writing? Or whenever you made that decision, what were you definitely going to do mystery novels or weren't you sure what you were going to do? And how did that all come about? I, I actually started writing about six months before I retired. I got the bug again for some reason. And I think yeah. there were a couple of things that caused that. One of them was the loss of a good friend that I had been partners with. Mm -hmm. And I think that particular traumatic event really opened up Pandora's box of feelings. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I realized that the artwork I had been doing, which was my therapeutic surrogate form of storytelling yeah. wasn't cutting it any longer. Yeah, you're a talented artist, too. Yeah. Didn't say Thank, that. You. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And I had to get back to my basics, and I wanted to be able to tell stories the way I used to be able to tell them. And I, I don't know if I really consciously thought, oh, I'm going to write murder mysteries. But I thought, well, geez, I know enough about this. Why don't I just write about a yeah. detective sergeant in Portland, Maine know. that solves murders? How hard could that be? Right, exactly. So <laughs> I started about six months before I retired without any intention of retiring at that point. And about six months into it, I, I realized that it was time to go. Aww. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll do some things on the side to make ends meet with the pension, and, and I will keep writing and see where that goes with the ultimate goal to become a published novelist. Right. Nice. So, and then who knew that? That what I would get to and this yeah. point, I had and no idea. And then look what so. happened. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, so how um, far do you intend to go? Do you have any idea with the John Byron series? Any thought as to how far you could bring that? Do you want to stop it at a certain point, or are you just like, I'm going to ride this till he's done with whatever it is he has to do? I think as long as I have something to say that I want to keep the series going. Right. Uh, somebody, oh, they always want to know a quantitative you know, number. I know. And, yeah. And for me, I think 10 is a, is a reasonable yeah. expectation. If I can go beyond that, great. Right now, I knew exactly when I started writing the first one and where I wanted to go by the third one. Oh, that's good. And I, why I like that is because the stories themselves stand alone, but I wanted to be able to take the characters, the main characters, on a story arc. Diane and John's relationship, I wanted to have follow a path. Yeah. Realistic, good and bad path. And yes. I want John and Diane to both, who have, who have a lot of their own baggage, they're a good fit together, but they're also horrible together in regards of <laughs> what, what should be happening. Yeah. And so I want that to play out a certain way. And so I've already written the ending to the third yeah. book, and I'm happy with it. And I've done the same thing I did on the first book, which when I wrote that book, of course, I never knew there would be a series. So I, I ended the first book where, had that been the end of it, it would have been a good ending. You'd right. have been satisfied with that yeah. ending. Right. The second book, I intentionally left you hanging. 
And I've gotten uh, death threats for that. No, I'm only uh, kidding. <laughs> they go, I love the book except for the last line. I'm yeah, like, all right, well, hey. Yeah. But the third one, I, I'm back to the way I finished the first one where if this series doesn't get renewed, and we yeah. don't go beyond three books, you will again be very satisfied well, with good. the end. Yeah. I think that's a well, good I way to go. I want to say that I really enjoyed the use of Portland as a setting and the fact that you know it so well because, I mean, I know there's other authors that use Portland too because mm-hmm. I've lived here since I was 18, but you do describe it. Thank you. I'm, ha- I'm happy with that. Really, my goal when I set out to do that because I realized after I'd written the book that what I hadn't really done was created that city that I needed to create. And I thought, okay, well, if I treat Portland as a character, yeah, and I yeah, and I know I've got a love-hate relationship with that city. I love so many things about yeah. it, and I'm still reminded of all the bad yeah. that yeah. occurred there over my years. Yeah. I could do the I, th- I thought I could do the tour of death. Yeah. I could I buy the 15-passenger bus and yeah, give tours, right? So for me, I, I my goal when I did this, when I went back and said, okay, now let's create the backdrop. I had read Jerry Boyle and I had read Paul yeah. Dwarren, yes. and I said nobody that I have read yet does a better job of describing rural Maine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can see it. I can right. see it. I can, can smell, smell it. it. I can, right. you know, yeah. I'm like, that yeah. is rural yeah. Maine. So my model was, okay, I need to be able to do that with Portland. Portland. Right. Yeah. It, no matter how hard it is, I have to bring that city to life. Yeah. And so that was what I set out to do. And as fate would have it, you know, you know what a supportive community the Maine no. crime writing community yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and legitimately, you know, it's one of those things that sounds like everybody just says, but, no, you know, it's, true, it's unbelievable. It's true. So right after I had finished the manuscript and got to the point where I was now waiting on copy edits, I began hearing from some of the writers. Uh, Gail Lynch reached out to me. Paul Dwarren reached out to me. And Paul said, geez, I'd love to read your book. And oh, if I, I like it, I'll write a blurb. And I thought, oh, my God, of all people to want to read this, he's got. what if he hates it? What yeah. if I did a crappy job? Yeah. You know, whatever. And when he finally got back to me, he said, geez, I, I love the book, but I have to tell you, my favorite thing was how well you described yeah. Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Like he goes, that's the best description of that big little city that I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Like yeah. seriously? Yeah. You know, I'm like, this was all you that I was trying yeah. to do. So yeah. I was, yeah. I was very happy. Yeah. So yeah, that was great. fun. So. Had you ever considered when you first started writing, either having a fictional Portland-like city or having it somewhere else in Maine? I did. I thought about making up a city or making up the whole thing and you know I mean you in other words it could have been the Cabot Cove of Maine or whatever but I thought you know there's so much research involved with writing especially if it's something you don't know Yeah, yeah and I thought well I mean the whole point of this is here I am writing mystery with no idea I would ever return to writing why would I waste the experiences that I've had in that city? Yeah. So I thought, I'm going to use that city. For me, yeah. that city also brings emotion out in me, and so I wanted to be able to try to do that to the and reader. And that's probably part of the whole city of Portland, like you said, as a character, and it also it adds to the way the stories play out because of the size of the city. Yeah, I find, too, that for authors who use small towns, villages... It doesn't bother me, obviously not because I do it, to have a fictional one. But it always kind of bugs me when somebody has a fictional city that's obviously a city. Right. You have freedom with a city that you don't have with a town right. because there's so much to it and there's enough people that everybody doesn't think that the characters are them. And yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was an incident, that book you read that time where the guy had a Burger King on the State Street yeah. in Augusta and you're like, ah, there was no Burger King on State Street in Augusta and it drove you crazy and then I read the book and it drove me crazy. <laughs> but with the city, you have the freedom, I think, to be able to use the city. And like you said, you know it so well. 
light. And it changes so much. You can you can still play with it a little. You know, there are businesses oh, that yeah. are long gone. There are businesses that are opening and think. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, I use the names of a lot of real businesses or a yeah. lot of real things. Yeah. And then some things I mess with, and I really don't know why. I just I kind of go with my gut. Harmon's lunch is in there, but I didn't call it Harmon's lunch. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The I Press Herald. I'm not calling it the Press yeah. Herald. I call it the Portland Herald. Well, yeah. I would say. And I've had people call me out on that, and I'm thinking, oh, geez, that's weird. I never knew that that's what it was called after all those years. Seriously. Yeah, so Are you kidding me? 32 years there? Yeah, but you know. you, it's like fiction people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also, a lot of writers who use a real place go by this kind of rule that I'm not going to have a murder committed right. at a real right. business. And, and I'm not going to have Jerry something. Boyle does that, yeah. too, because yeah. he uses Portland. But and he uses he, Bangor, too. And, and he his streets, place. some of the streets aren't real streets. Right. right. Because probably because of that. Right. You want, don't want... Yeah, you don't want real house numbers. Right. You know, yeah, affect, so I don't want to affect the marketability of your house. You know, holy God, the murder happened here, right? Okay, well, we should probably wrap this up because you have uh, things to do. So just remind our listeners who you are and what the names of your books are and where they can get them. Bruce Robert Coffin, and I write the John Byron Mystery Series for HarperCollins. Uh, The first two novels in the series, Among the Shadows and Beneath the Depths, are available at all your local booksellers and also online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that stuff. Thank you, Bruce. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, very much. See you later. So, are we going to do some recommendations today? Yeah. And I had at first thought of doing recommendations relating to the authors, you know, people here at Crime Bay, some of the speakers, Lisa Gardner was the guest. They always have a keynote guest, but... I read a book that uh, you read a book <laughs> that just blew me away. So that's going to be my recommendation. But okay. do you want to start, or do you want me to start? You might as well start. It's called "The Death of the Innocents" by Richard Firstman and Jamie Talon. And I think from reading the acknowledgments, they may be a married couple. But in any case, I started reading it because I thought it was a true crime book about Munchausen by proxy, which I've developed yes, a recent we obsession discussed, with. Yes, did, we discussed. Yes, we discussed. Our, have we discussed that? We discussed it because I told you you needed to read more case files or something. Oh, that's right. Yes, I remember that. And I'm glad you took my recommendation and did some more research. (laughs) Thank you. But it starts out, it's in upstate New York in the 1980s. It starts out like a true crime book. This couple, their child and not the first child in their family has died. And it raises suspicions, particularly among the father of the young woman who's the mother of these children. And it turns out, very early in the book, the father (laughs) of the children is convicted of killing them. And this is in the mid-80s. And the DA, and this is in the Syracuse, New York area, kind of looks into the fact that the family claims sudden infant death syndrome, and a lot of people had accepted that. And he talks to this expert in Texas, and she's like, you know, man, anytime it's more than one kid... You have to look at homicide. And if it's more than two kids, it's definitely homicide. Ooh. And he's like, no, SIDS is inherited. And and she's like, and she's like, no, everything we know about SIDS being inherited and what causes it is based on a study that came out in 1972 by Dr. Steinschneider, who's actually in Syracuse, who based it on this family where they lost five children. And two of them are ones he, the last two are ones he personally studied. And I believe that study is bogus, and those children were all murdered. 
Mm. And this is a pathologist in Texas saying Ooh. this. And the DA's like, yeah, right. And she's like, no, look at the study. Most people who are doing SIDS research and learning about SIDS, both doctors and pathologists, aren't going back and reading this study. They're just reading that this study said this. Uh, and if you read the study, there are a lot of inconsistencies and things that don't make sense. Wow. And she felt very strongly about okay. it. And this was the mid-80s. So the prosecutors, his name was Fitzgerald, his interest was piqued. So he went back. She said, this family killed their five children, and they're in your area. And he said, well, shit, if they killed their five children, and this was late 60s, early 70s, then they should be prosecuted. But he looked it up, and they managed. The names of the kids weren't in the study, but they had a last initial, and there was one reference to an autopsy for one of the earlier kids who had died. And it turned out it was done at a research hospital in Syracuse. So they found out the family was actually from Tioga County, which is one of the southern tier counties in New York. So it wasn't his case. So he called the um, Tioga County DA, and it's a very rural, poor county, and tried to convince him to find out more and prosecute these people for murdering their children. The Tioga County DA is, what the fuck are you talking about? I was like, oh, don't give me another case. As the book goes on, but people didn't, wouldn't accept the fact that people would kill their children. Well, that's a hard thing to believe. It is. And Munchausen, by proxy, had only been identified in 1977, and Mm -hmm. most people hadn't heard about it but this book goes into it's really fascinating the way it's structured it's a study of this woman Juanita Hoyt whose five children died three of them were infants in the SIDS range like the three to six month range one of them was two and a half years Mm. old and the first one was a little older but the report even fudged their ages and fudged the details That's the report Steinschneider did. In general, the book is not only a look at this case, but a look at how SIDS research was done, how it formed, how Hmm. in different factions, different parts of the country, there were parents whose children died of SIDS who said, there are babies dying, we have to do something about it. But there were also people who jumped on this bandwagon, including two doctors at Mass General, which is one of the biggest hospitals in New England, who, using Steinschneider's report, made huge, huge, huge amounts of money, having parents use sleep monitors yeah. that were later. But a lot of what people understood about SIDS came from what actually turned out to be a quintuple homicide. But and, book, and a flawed study. And a flawed study, because the doctor wanted this to be... What Which he happens, wanted it to be. Well, a lot of times in scientific research, you have one person doing a study. They have something they want to prove, and they prove it no matter what. Yes. But also, that type of study is harder to replicate. A lot of studies, that's why they always have people do blind reps. But And there were flaws in the way he did the study. And I want to say about the book, it sounds like there may be a lot of dense scientific material, and it does go into a science because it goes into this murder case as well as the history of SIDS research, the early history of Munchausen by proxy research, the differences between what pediatricians and how they look at things to the way pathologists look at things. There are so many facets to this, 
And I can imagine the authors must have done a decade of research because the narrative flow is really great. It reads like a novel. I'd say I couldn't put it down, but I read it on my Kindle. But, yeah. well, I guess that still can't you put can it down. Can't but there it, were huh? other things I had to do, and I could not stop reading this book. And it's long. I couldn't really tell on Kindle, you know, how you can't tell how long it is sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good 600 or so pages. And I don't want that to put anybody off because the things I learned, as boring as that may sound, but just the things I thought about SIDS, and which stands for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Yes. I don't know if I said that. Also, the things about human nature, about how people will will themselves to believe certain yeah. things, how people can look at a something that's obvious and tell, insist it's not, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. It was just, I would say, one of the best researched, most thoroughly researched and well-written nonfiction books I've ever oh, read in my life. Nice. And it's called The Death of the Innocents. Okay. And it's not a recent book. It came out, in fact, they've learned new things like one thing I learned in another Munchausen by proxy book about a woman who killed her kids is, you know, it's not that people necessarily intend to kill the kid, but they keep suffocating it so they can revive it and get all the attention for the hospital. And I won't go into all that today. But one thing they learned after this book was written that I learned in another book is the more you do that to an infant, the more it affects certain physiological things that make the child have certain symptoms and be more likely to die. Uh, yeah, because you're damaging their, yeah. Yeah, but so the so physicians look at the baby and say, yes, there is something wrong with this baby. The yeah. mother isn't lying. There is something wrong, which is something that was learned after the book came out. So it came out in 1997. Oh, so a lot has been learned about. 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Thanks for doing the math for me. A lot has been learned both about SIDS and Munchausen by proxy since yeah. then. But even reading this... It's not like I'm thinking, oh, this... The, well, the history hasn't changed. Right, the history hasn't changed, and I don't read this and think, oh, all this is obsolete, and what they're mm-hmm. saying is no longer believed. And this was, when this came out, was right around the time where they were discovering that SIDS rates were dropping hugely a lot because people were being told to put their babies to sleep on their backs. Mm. And so it was something that simple. These doctors were looking for all these strange... It is difficult to get them to go to sleep on their backs. That's probably why people never did it. Yeah. Another reason SIDS rates have gone down is that people killing their children is more of a recognized thing. When Juanita Hoyt first started killing her kids in the late 60s, Nobody would believe a mother. Well, even back, I mean, it's not that long ago, but infant death, while it was tragic, still they were were more vulnerable than they are now. And so, if someone's baby died, it was like, oh, that's sad. But and they didn't really understand um, sudden infant death syndrome. Right. But it happened a lot. Well, and well, the book points out, you know, as a real thing. But you could also get away with smothering your child. Well, the book baby. Well, the book points out that sudden infant death syndrome really, and they didn't come up with that term until 1969. Was really a doctor's way of saying your baby died, and I don't know why. And we're not saying that all baby deaths are, I mean, babies die from, you know, birth defects. They die from things that are obvious. SIDS are when a baby, a healthy baby that had no reason to die, Mm -hmm. dies. And suffocating or smothering your baby is apparently easy physically to do. I wouldn't think it would be easy emotionally to do. But If you're sociopathic. Yes, but the symptoms, there are no symptoms that look any different from a baby 
the baby just well, stopped breathing and its heart stopping. Yeah. So I just want to recommend if yeah, you're looking for a uh, good nonfiction read to get into, The Death of the Innocents, check it out. I was just blown away by it. Yeah. And what do you recommend? Well, I'm recommending a book that we actually read in our book group in September. I've been in this a member of this book group for 20 years now. It started as a mother-daughter book yes, group. Yes, it did, and my mother and I are still in it. Every September, we will pick a book that has a movie made of it, and we will read the book and watch the movie together. So this year, we picked Rebecca because... Because it's your name. Yeah, no. Because Maureen, who's the sometime member of the group. I only, oh, I shouldn't say it. I was going to say I only do it when I like when the book. Like it. Oh, oh. Or when I don't have something else to do. <laughs> or, so whatever. Yeah. Anyways, at this conference. conference, there was a seminar, Reading Like a Writer, and Rebecca was the book. And I realized I had never read the book. I had seen the movie, and it's Alfred Hitchcock. It's, you know, Here. Alfred Hitchcockian. Speaking of noir. Yeah. Yes, it's noirish. The book is extremely good. I yes. know um, a lot of people think of Daphne du Maurier. Du Mar- Why can't I say her name? Du Maurier. Daphne of- du Maurier. Yes, thank you. Why couldn't I say I that? I don't know. I think of her as a romance novelist, and she's really not. Oh. I'd like Jamaica in, too. It's gothic. She's more gothic. I think a lot of people know the story. She's a young wife, and we actually, in the book, you never know her name, her first Which name. Which apparently bothers people. Bothers some people. It's not like she just couldn't think of a name, the author. It's a decision she made. Yes. Everything that happens in the book, I think she's a very underrated writer. Yes. And probably because she's a woman. Yeah. And she was married to some rich guy. But mm-hmm. she has made choices for the writing. So everything that happens in the book and every way it happens is her decision. Yes. It's a well-constructed plot. Right, and, and that may book. sound like an obvious thing if you're listening, but it's really not. But when people say, well, why didn't she ever have a name? Or she was so wimpy. Well, let me just give you a, yes, a synopsis. Sure. It's not a unique plot device. She's a young woman, meets this widower who's older, he's probably like 40, and she's in her, or like 23. Yeah. And he sweeps her off her feet, they get married, they go back to his um, and she, estate. And she and too, she's in a situation, she's a companion, paid companion yeah, for an older like woman. Yeah, she's like an orphan or something. And, right. She, and she doesn't she, have a family, really. Right, and the older woman is very unpleasant. She's funny. She's, she's funny. American. Yeah, she's American and doesn't treat the young woman well, so she really wants to get out of her situation, yes. too. And she falls in love. She falls in love very and quickly. Very quickly, but she, you know, she's young, and, yes. and he lives in this estate, Manderley, which is on the uh, western coast of England. Like right? Cornwall. Cornwall. So they honeymoon for a few months, as they used to do back when they're rich In people. Italy. Um, they go all over the place, but then they go back, and when they get back there, it's not a welcoming place to her. First of all, she's very insecure, and it's obvious it's obvious to her that her husband was deeply in love with his dead wife, and he's grieving. And that's and that Rebecca. She can, Rebecca, yeah. and that's the Rebecca in the title. And she can never hold a candle to her. Mm. As everyone's always going on about how great Rebecca was, beautiful, brilliant, blah, blah, blah. She's insecure and young as it is. Doesn't have many allies, although she does have more than she thinks. Yeah, she does. But that's how the story unfolds, and it's seen through her point of view, although we as the reader, I think we pick up on things. It's one of those devices where readers pick up on things 
more quickly. And well, this is we're, we think that she shouldn't be so insecure, right? And more quickly, right, than the than the narrator does, and the writer does that on purpose. It's not like the writer, and, but she's not dumb, right? The she's woman is insecure dumb. and naive. And one of the things I really liked about it was she's a daydreamer, mm-hmm, and like she has too. these elaborate worst case scenarios. Yeah, worst case scenarios. And the, this book was written in the 30s. This book was written, I think, in the early to mid 30s. Yes. It takes place in the 20s. Yes. Um, I, I figured out by what she was wearing. She's totally different. She's like a, totally different than Rebecca. So she thinks that's bad. And I'm not going to give away anything in case you haven't read it. But it stands up today. The characters in it, like Rebecca has this cousin that shows up. And you can just see, you know, he's just he's so, so sleazy. And there's still the type now. Like yes. she describes people so well. She does. Her writing is really good. It's really She's good. really good and, and the um, husband, Matt. Maxine is kind of standoffish and you're not really sure why and I was engrossed in the book and the movie is good it's pretty good but the book just has so much more so I would highly recommend that book one thing I would say as far as people thinking oh it's an old book the other thing, and I got this a little from the seminar we were in yesterday reading like a writer is people were very critical of the narrator. And yes. I would say if you're reading like a writer or if you're reading like a reader, Daphne du Maurier does a very good job very early in the book when we first meet this young woman of setting up why she is the way she yes. is. And because the the beginning of the book is her as oh, she's older. Looking back. Looking back. And she says that basically I was a dumb young yeah. thing and now I can see. Right. I never got frustrated with no, her reading I didn't. it. I, I felt bad for her. I empathized. And I empathized with her. And I understood why she felt the way she did. Like that whole scene where she she breaks this little Cupid figurine and hides it. I, I would have done I that. I would have done that too because she's so intimidated. Especially by Mrs. Danvers, yes, the and housekeeper. Yes, and she doesn't see that. Look, I am the matron of this house or whatever, mistress of this house. Instead of calling somebody and saying, look, you know, well, I broke thing, this, clean it and up. And one reason you feel empathy for her is... She came from a totally different class, yes. and this was, you know, almost 100 years ago, so yeah. the class system was different. And her husband doesn't have a lot of insight. Yeah, he's just, oh, honey, it's okay. He doesn't you're, the, un- you're the lady of the house, don't worry about it. But he doesn't... He doesn't understand the situation she's in as opposed to the situation his previous wife was in. He doesn't communicate at all about no. his previous wife, which leads her to a lot oh, of God, yes. thinking a lot of things that aren't true. He doesn't pay a lot of attention to what she's thinking or feeling. No, he's kind of just like simultaneously thinks she's silly and she's a young silly girl, although he loves her, but he's just kind of like, what are you talking about? You're the lady of the house. Yeah. Mrs. Danvers will help you. Don't and, worry about it. And I don't it. think he understood a lot about what went into being the lady of the house. Or how intimidated she would be as yes. a young woman. And the type of young woman she is. I mean, some yeah. young woman would take to it and be like, even if they came from her background, but, would be like, I'm the lady of the house now. I'm going to kick ass. But, but I think he should have been able to see from yes. her interaction with Mrs. Van Hopper her companion mm-hmm. and how she kind of ran rampant over the young lady and the young lady was a little cowed. Yeah, she, she kind was. of came out of her shell when Mrs. Van Hopper was sick in bed. Yes. When, so when she and Max started, you know, dating, dating or whatever, or whatever yeah. you want to call it. But 
he seemed to kind of understand that. So you'd think he would be able to... Well, he was almost... The thing that bothered me, and it, it's not unusual, and it's not a criticism of the book. No, it's But not. about the relationship, and it happens often in an older man-younger woman scenario, and perhaps the other way around, but it's not as common. It's he's kind of a father type. He's, he's the dominant. Yeah. He still expected her to... Behave to, like a mature yeah, adult. Yeah. what she when, was doing. When it was... He treated her like a child, but yet yeah. expected her to behave mm-hmm. like a mature adult. That was a conscious choice Just, by the writer as was. well. It was. And if you're frustrated with anybody in the book, it should be with Max, but you're supposed to be frustrated with him. Yeah. But I think sometimes readers don't understand that you're supposed to feel certain feelings. Yes. You're not supposed to think every character is great and love everything they no. do. Even the protagonist that you empathize with or are supposed to identify with, You don't always agree with what they do. That whole dynamic of one person thinking one thing and another person thinking another thing to people who are very close in a relationship but not communicating well or making assumptions based on their personality flaws is something... I read this book a couple times and read it a couple times as a teenager and it really stuck with me and that's a theme that you know what I'm going to say to you that I Grease Company uses all the time. Yes, exactly <laughs> exactly thank you yeah especially that swinging door that they were <laughs> always crashing no that when I first started writing mystery novels that's a theme I kind of wanted to have and that I was always interested in how people don't communicate with people they care about or are close yes. to and it can lead to problems just Even if you haven't read the book, if you've seen the movie or maybe you're just familiar, her first line is one of the famous and really good first lines in literature. And it's, last night I dreamed I went to Manderley again. And it does what they've told us to do at this conference. And as a writer, you raise a question. You raise a lot of questions. Is she going to tell me about Manderley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just her scene settings and the way she evokes feelings in people. If you've heard me, and maybe I haven't gone on about it as much as I should, about people who use too many adjectives and adverbs rather than finding creative, interesting ways to show scenery and description and emotion. Mm. She does such a good job of it. She's one of those writers, when you're reading her, you're not thinking, oh, she's doing it this way or that way because she's good enough that you get caught up in the story. And now I've got to read, I'm going to reread... Jamaica, Jamaica Inn. Inn. I started watching that, and it was a series I found on Netflix, and I just could not enjoy it. I watched a made-for-TV movie with Jane Seymour on it. That was good. But So that's our episode for today. Yeah. And we'll be back with another. I think and I think Mo's going to do it. Yes, it this, Are you counting this as your turn? So no, this is a neutral it. turn. Oh, yeah. good. I am going to do it, and it's going to be another main ripped from the headlines. Yay! Uh, something that happened recently and something that's been a controversial Ooh. homicide issue in Well, me. you can't do the one where the guy pretended to be someone on Facebook, because I already did that. Oh, yeah, that was last time. Uh, Shit, I'll have to think of something. No, this is a different one, okay. and I don't want to say too much, just in case I change my mind and have to do something else. Yeah. But that's what I'm planning Thank you for listening, everybody. Okay. Oh. Hey, and find us on our website, Crime and Stuff Online, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram sometimes. Just mm. search. And I do, I know I say this and every Apple week. Apple Podcasts. Is yeah. Why, why do they change it? iTunes They still easier. haven't informed me. Until they tell me personally they've changed it from <laughs> iTunes, I'm not. It's I, that purple icon with the little. Or Android. Or if you go Whatever. to our website. If you go to our website, we have all the 
platforms. You and can, you can even listen can to listen it just right on the website or through Blueberry, our host. And I know I say this every episode, but I do plan to update our more stuff. Oh, you do, do you? Page, yeah. And I know I say this, but thank you, everyone who listens, and all our patrons especially. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We appreciate it. And listen to our other podcasts. Groovy Tube. Groovy Tube. The Crimes of the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Our spinoff podcast. So, talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. But <laughs> well, you've heard, you've listened to our podcast. Yes, I've right? I've listened. So you know so what it, I know. Yeah, believe it or not, that's edited. <laughs> <laughs>